0: Please, let this, April April joke. Joke. Please, Please let, let this be an April Fool's joke. Please let this be an April Fool's joke. Please let this be an April Fool's joke. Please let this be, be an April Fool's joke.
1: Please let this be an April Fool's joke. April Fool's joke. April Fool's joke. <clears throat> <laughs> Welcome to Ali Meekly, episode seventy-six.
0: The podcast that'll have you saying, "Why aren't you talking about the thing?" Talk about a thing. What do we have to say? <laughs> I've been lying in bed most of the time. I've been eating a lot of hearty meals that last for days. Staring at my window at fast food places, like, why won't you feed me? Feed me. I had a conversation because my sister and her boyfriend walked by our building, and uh-huh. she texted me, and we we, I, we were like Romeo and Juliet Ooh, talking yeah. out the window on the street, and people were walking by, like, can you believe this? Like, not <laughs> as they got way too close to each other. Yeah. Can you believe this? And yeah. then they fell over. <laughs> it, it happened immediately. We've been accidentally watching all of these. Virus outbreak movies. Oh, like cool! Because like we have all these movies, and we're yeah. like, let's watch this one. Oh, it's about a horrific outbreak. Oh, yeah. D- they didn't take away all the, the quarantine movies. No, they did it. The uh, National Guard should take those away. They should us.
1: come into our homes and take them away. And <laughs> as a citizen of this country, I allow that. I support that. And <laughs> I they can also the fascism.
0: I don't need to carry a gun, <laughs> and they can also sleep in my house if they want to, <laughs> and I, I won't say anything. I won't say anything about it. <laughs> I'll uh, make them tea. <laughs> so let's explain for anyone who might be worried and wondering what. Hey, what's that sound quality? Hey, why do I hear birds chirping? Why are there little crickets? It's the sound around? of Daniel's heartbreaking. We're <laughs> recording this, we're, we're I would say we're like ten feet apart. Uh no, we're about like six to eight feet apart. I say closer to eight because I'm almost six feet. And wow, weird flex, but okay. Yeah, we want to see a weird flex. <laughs> Here I go. We're sitting far apart from each other in uh, what I think it's the Van Nuys Sherman Oaks Recreation Park. We're in the middle of yep. a grassy field. A lot of people going around, being cl- too close to each other, playing basketball, yeah,
1: taking oh God, walks in groups, yeah. playing uh, tennis,
0: kissing each other's fingers. I say that ju- we we're talking very
1: judgmentally, but then there's people playing baseball, and I'm like,
0: ooh, I have a glove in my car. Uh, do you need a shortstop. <laughs> and I do mean short because I'm five foot ten, <laughs> but you're not. Flex, flex, flex. <laughs> so yeah, we're sitting far apart. So if you hear a lot of "Huh? What's that? Repeat
1: that. Uh, what'd who, you say? What'd you say? <laughs> Whom are you talking to? <laughs> I um, to? I thought you were talking to that
0: dog that walked by you. But yeah, this is uh, this is horrible. This yep, is, this is a horrible time. Uh, it's very different. It's very different. And by each, and not in a good way. Nope.
1: And every. Every day is getting progressively worse, and every week is giant
0: leaps of bad. It is. It's not even weeks. I predict by the time this episode is out, no one will be able to leave their apartment. Yeah. So if you're wondering, like, how do they got to? First of all, we have keys to the city. <laughs> we can go wherever we want during any sort of situation. Thanks okay. to our little research we do. We researched where the keys to the city are, <laughs> and we did a little research on how to pick locks on the because th- we both don't Both of have those
1: key. things on the third page of Google r- web results.
0: Also, how do you get to the room with the keys to the city without the keys to the city Um, (laughs) you need the keys to the keys to the city anyway I'm practicing my new stand-up routine also I'm performing it for no audience my sleeping wife which is my specialty (laughs) years of training speaking of nobody listening to us we had a live show scheduled on April 27th which is Earth Day but Earth has rebelled (laughs) 22nd yeah Yeah, the Earth has rebelled against us and that's fine it's about time we haven't gotten an official word yet but I I want to say that that's going to be canceled. Yeah. So we'll keep everyone updated on that. Which I'm sure is the number one thing people were worried about. Rights in the streets. No wonder they called the National Guard. How am I going to get peanut butter and <laughs> LA Meekly Live? <laughs> National Guard. We'll be enlisted by the National Guard. Jesters. Official gestures. Official gestures. Official coughing gestures. <laughs>
1: oh, they're coughing. It's a bit, right? Oh, his face
0: is turning red. Oh, no. Cough for me, monkey. <laughs> Cough for me. Um, As I eat this turkey leg. That he likes it. We also, we're going to do, we're having a little contest. Yeah. We're doing authors this month, but we're going to have... Uh, we did a field trip episode with an L.A. author a yeah. few weeks ago before things got horrible. Yeah, when and you could leave the house. When you were still able to wear pants legally. When you could buy three hand sanitizers bottles at a time in the golden age. <laughs> Even then, who could? So that's going to be coming out. So yeah. he gave us a signed copy of his book. So we wanted to do a contest to give away that book. So the, co- the First of all, let's tell you what the book is. It's, it's
1: I bet That's why I pointed it at you, and you nodded to me like an idiot. I don't have
0: my binoculars. <laughs> <see it>. What? What? <laughs> Huh? What are you pointing? What? What's that, honey? What? Oh. 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 I can't wait till we gather a crowd here and we Heart. get broken. I <laughs> know. <laughs> a, cra- a crowd of soccer players, of angry soccer players. Yeah. Just kicking the ball in the air. Yeah. Show offs. Weird flex, right? Right? They're weird flexing. So the book is 10,000 Steps a Day in LA. It's the second edition. It's by Paul Haddad. And it's signed by him. Yeah. This is autographed. So it's a book of different walks you can take around LA, which is a good thing right now. Again, unless the city keeps us all inside by the time this episode comes out. So the contest will be on Instagram or Twitter. Post a picture or video or something of you listening to us during the quarantine. Tag us. Your name will be added to the list. It'll be randomized and we'll pick a winner in a few weeks. But since I'm not going near anybody in the post office, either if you live in the area, I can drop this off at your front step and And take a photo with them, right? Right? Take a photo with them? I set up a quick kissing booth. <laughs> a kiss for a book. Except the contest. <laughs> if you live nearby, I could drop it off at your doorstep with a little wipe in a bag and you can wipe it down. Or I could take pictures of the things that you want and send them to you. Or you could just wait until this is over and it's safe to... Safe to just when you thought it was safe to go back in the post office. <laughs> Am I right? Son of Sam. <laughs> so that'll be the contest. Again, on Twitter or Instagram, post a picture or video or something of you listening to us in quarantine. Tag us. You'll be entered to win. And we'll know if you didn't listen. Yeah. If it's
1: like a picture of our logo taped to your
0: computer screen and you're like, oh yeah, I listen. Yeah. We'll know. <laughs> because the government took away our computers. <laughs> oh my god, there's butterflies. This is nice. There's butterflies flying around us everywhere. They're trying to stop us. Oh no! <laughs> oh goodness. <laughs> Giant butterflies holding a butterfly net. <laughs> there's a lot of butterflies. There's a lot of nature out here. Yeah, the, I think the, the, bu- the uh, monarchs are... Uh, yeah, well this is America. How about the president butterfly? <laughs> Who I love.
1: Who has never done a single thing wrong.
0: Who has never gotten us into a Bad situation.
1: <laughs> he he called it the you know Chinese virus or whatever. Then he did a, ne- a news conference and somebody asked him like why 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 are you spreading that kind of thing? Is it's not the Chinese virus and you know that? He's like because it originated in China. <laughs> <laughs> Idiot. What a weird person that guy is. Anyways, the monarchs a are migrating. Of, a lot of charm.
0: Yeah. So that's that. That's the contest.
1: I hope to see uh, somebody like me win. Maybe me.
0: I mean, hey, if nobody else enters. Yeah. Oh my god, go away with that.
1: Not really. That's far enough, you know. <laughs> it's not necessarily a social distance podcast, but we are. It's a podcast. We are
0: keeping a good distance while social yeah. distancing. See you later. Bye. Have a good walk. Well, we're infected now. Yeah. Our first interruption, wondering what we're doing. Well, Loving guess what? It. <laughs> Instead of janitors normally interrupting us, yeah. now it's uh, sick people, sick park goers. One day
1: that kid will be janitor. And I applaud him. And I look forward to him and I helping each other out in the future. Because I'll probably also be a janitor after all this, you know? We'll all be janitor. The we'll only job left will be janitors. Janitors and Trader Joe's employees.
0: <laughs> also, we have a couple new Patreon people. One returning that we missed out on last time. There's Miguel Amador. And then we have a new one, Madeline Piller. Hi. Piller? Spell it. P-I-L-L-E-R. I don't know. Piller. It's people with these confusing last names. We look Not forward Mike to Mead you. Daniel Zafron. Zafron. Uh. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> Daniel Zach. Ef- every open mic, like Daniel at. It's a new, it's a, It's never the same mispronunciation. It's, it's a, always it, Daniel Zach Efron, Zach and then everyone
0: Efron. laughs and it's the last laugh you hear. Wait a minute, you're really far away. I didn't hear that last part. (laughs) Let me go hang out with those social distance fans. Okay, so hey, what did you do in this past month before we all got shut down? I'll tell you just before we all got shut down, I
1: went on a three-hour walk through mm-hmm. Elysian Park, and I put it on our stories, and it was really nice because I'd gone to a lot of places like Leo Polotti Park and Elysian Park. It's tucked away. It's named after the the watercolor
0: artist that I'm a yeah, fan of. Yeah, we've talked about him in the um, Angelino Heights. Yeah,
1: thing. that's right. Yeah, because he, he did a book about Carroll Street and yeah. Victorian homes in Bunker Hill. Uh, Bunker, he did about Bunker Hill. But like that's a beautiful park, and... I walked by Dodger Stadium which is all closed up and I heard gunshots from the police academy because they're practicing and then I'm uh Uh, yeah
0: they're practicing practicing
1: how many bullets does it take to take down a a victim um and then my uh my boyhood best friend picked me up he saw me walking which I shouldn't have gotten in the car but he's like I'll take you inside Dodger Stadium and we went real bad idea I hope
0: it was worth it to see an empty baseball stadium it kind of (laughs) was it was very sad what about you what do you do lock
1: yourself up barricade the windows Uh, put
0: uh put your dresser in front of the front door well I don't want anything to get through the cracks (laughs) my stupid building I I told you but the Day after they were like, "All right, no, only emergency maintenance." And then the next day, like, "We're coming into all of your units oh to measure your windows." No, so not. we told them, "No, yeah, you're not coming in here. Yeah, oh, there's a, do- a dogs are gonna start running up to us now." Are you doing a wolf cast, <laughs> a social <wolf-wolf? laughs> Yeah, kinda. <laughs> Go away. What I did in the past month before this happened was uh, I went to a restaurant. What was that like? I
1: can't remember. What was it like
0: what to not eat a bunch like? of old rice that you had <laughs> in the back of the cabinet? It was Mofungo's in oh. North Hollywood. It's a Puerto Rican place. and uh, we yeah, are cultured. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> oh my, God, wait, my timer's going off. Oh, I know. Wait, I've been hearing on. it for like three minutes. <laughs> oh, no, I snoozed. Well, you know what that means you lose i did i say lose?d you snoozed you lose you snussed, you <laughs> lost so i went to mofongo's you know it's a puerto rican <laughs> there's this puerto rican virus going around and it's called the merengue <laughs> it's a puerto rican place and they do mofongo which is like it's like mashed up plantains with like bits of chicken crackling in it so it has like a it's like chewy but also kind of crunchy and then they top it with this sauce and I got fried chicken on top of it really good that sounds really good really good and they I think they're still open for takeout and you know whatever most restaurants are doing if you're comfortable with that yeah but once this is over if any restaurant still exists go there very good and really nice people
1: I always thought that I would never experience something like the day that prohibition ended like the celebration in the streets but I think that when this is done we're all gonna meet at an Applebee's and freak out (laughs) can you
0: believe I can order scampi again <laughs> i'm
1: gonna be shaking everybody's hands and hear me out not after washing. after this is all done i'm never I'm washing not. my hands again i've washed the top layer of skin off my <laughs> knuckles
0: and you look like look you, like a boxer i was gonna say you look like the invisible man but what do you look like without bandages which is just invisible it, <laughs> It looks like nothing. I think He's, we should start. We have a listener question. Okay, hit me with it. I haven't told you about this one, but it's a stupid one. It's from Amartko on Instagram. You okay. know him. I do know him. Yo, Alex. One of the groomsmen at my wedding. Handsome guy. His question. Strong hands. And I'll never find those again. <laughs> I'll never be able to experience <laughs> I've those I've thinking hands. about those
1: strong hands this whole time. Like, God. So
0: his question is, why does Daniel put fries in his pocket? This is a personal question. Be- can I answer it? Yeah. Because you're an old man.
1: Because you're a weird old man who likes to play chess in the park. And you. Oh, I'm going to need these cold potato
0: slices later no i record podcasts in the park <laughs> and yes i will need these cold potato slices later <laughs> mofungos plantain slices now i don't think this is apparently this is weird because several people have pointed it out before i don't do it that much anymore but i know that i've don't i've walked into blood. staple center with a pocket full of french fries from the pantry that's like a that's like an old 20s lyric about you this is a the pocket new, full of
1: french fries
0: this is the new update to the uh, pocket full of posies plague <laughs> for the quarantine pocket full of french fries is, it's worth two in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do it as much but like if I'm going somewhere I know that one time and this even now I recognize was crazy you and I went to see a movie a long long time ago and I put a hot dog in my yep. pocket it, like the a movie fully was loaded there will be blood it was there will be blood yeah, yeah. And, you were, you, and you were like they're not gonna let me
1: in with this and I don't wanna eat it now like I woof mine down before the movie I think and you you're did. like I wanna eat it and watch the movie I wanna watch this three hour long dry commentary
0: about greed i think that this movie is going to be about hot dogs <laughs> i think the blood is a metaphor for chili ketchup. i think it might be ketchup that's weird that i put a whole hot dog in it was in my pocket. But and you couldn't french
1: be talked down
0: no i, I refuse <laughs> yeah. much like all these people in the park i will not be told what to do by the national <laughs> guard that was crazy but if you wrap up some french fries oh in a napkin God. and put in your pocket sneak into the stable center oh you'll be fine this is like you were caught
1: embezzling and you're just trying to defend it like it's okay. I was trying to build a school for uh, needy children. I was trying to build an orphanage. Like, this is like the same level of defense. And you haven't even told people the whole story. You just jumped right into defending yourself, which is well, what uh, needs pretty to, guilty. Look,
0: fries in the pocket. That's like uh, Ernest Hemingway's five-word story. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need to know. Yeah. It, it's uh, it's
1: called an Orson Welles, for those who don't know. <laughs>
0: No, the hot dog in the pocket <laughs> was the Orson Welles. The hot dog in the stomach was the Orson Welles. <laughs> so you didn't even wait for because those pants even fit pockets. But uh, you look, you make fun of me for for saving my food back then. Where are you now? I'm not <laughs> sharing. I'm not sharing my. You French don't know fries the next time you're going to get
1: a French fry, do you?
0: Good luck getting anything in your pocket these days.
1: Do you have French fries in yeah. your pocket right now? I've got Be honest. I have toilet Answer, paper. Answer straightforward. I'm all
0: about toilet paper now.
1: Do you have pockets in your? Uh, do you have pockets in your French fries <laughs> right now? Do you have I, French fries in your pocket right now?
0: I don't, but I have mints and a tums. Hmm empty yeah. your pockets no empty your pockets no the national guard is not here <laughs> i'm not di- i'm not emptying my pockets let's really get into the episode now Now
1: it feels like you getting into the episode is a diversion no it's okay just keep talking <laughs> oh wait do you have any mustard in your pocket <laughs> <laughs> what a weird commie you are do you have mayonnaise in your pockets
0: i can eat with my not french fries with eat. my <laughs> medicinal potatoes let's get into the actual episode this isn't about who has what in their pockets nobody has anything <laughs> well, how, in their who, pockets. how tall who is uh, look, I'm just as confused as to why it smells like Fuddruckers <laughs> in this park so strongly. Oh, they closed the Fuddruckers, by the way. Really? Yeah. Why wouldn't they? I mean, so why, w- <laughs> why was it open for so long is a better question. So this month we're going to be talking about authors. We're thinking about like an outbreak sort of thing, but we've already done the plague outbreak twice. And yeah. I don't think there's anything else to be said.
1: I- I'm sure that the 1918 Spanish flu swept through the LA area, but I'm so sick of reading about Flu sweeping through
0: areas. I kind of wanted to take a break. Yeah, and what a break we had with what? (laughs) What? Huh? With four authors of Los Angeles. That's four authors of Los Angeles. Pulp authors of Los Angeles. Yeah, we didn't know that going in. We that wasn't our goal. Yeah, but once we all were drawn to who we wanted to do, we're like, oh, this is all just comic book stuff. Yeah, I had my without pictures.
1: I had my. Gal, and I wanted you to do right. one. And then you were like, well, what about these two? And then we're like, well, if we don't do it, then we're stupid. And then it turned
0: out they're all pulp writers. Yeah. Let's get into Walk it. Walk us through the first one. All right. So, this first one is the man whose name is almost the name of something on a menu at a Mexican restaurant. Edgar Rice Burroughs. Oh this made me so hungry to I Does mean, I have you, rice over, look, and over. I caught you in a loophole. You would not ask me if there was a burrito in my pocket, you <laughs> idiot. <laughs> you stupid idiot. Damn it. <laughs> I'm only allowed to
1: ask three questions. I have to pick one food item, and, and ask now three you items.
0: have to wander the desert for twenty years without any hand sanitizer. Why wouldn't it have been a burrito?
1: Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't
0: it? I should pick picked burrito. To keep in mind for this story, I don't know about your people, but I learned from the. I don't know about you Describe people. Describe my, my facial expression when you said that. You made a, as if I had just said the word Mexican restaurant <laughs> very enunciatedly, <laughs> much like Donald Trump. <laughs> Mexican. Because the burrito came from Mexico. <laughs> I don't know about the authors you covered, but mine, it turned out, authors are not successful. Like none of mine were like, oh, I grew up, and i wanted to be an author like these were all unsuccessful people that were for that had to write because that was all they had to do i
1: didn't necessarily have that but okay. i'm interested in all right. you telling well, the story Okay,
0: so keep this in mind edgar rice burrito was a failure who didn't know what he ever wanted to do with his life cool so for mo- most of his life that is he was born september 1st 1875 in chicago but his life was constant moving and restarting like all the time as a kid he changed school six times Oof. Here's where we talk about diseases, usually due to disease outbreaks. So the next Edgar Rice Burrito is coming. So one time during a diphtheria epidemic, he got moved into the only private school in his neighborhood, which was an all-girls school. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Edgarina! What? <laughs> you want to come shake my hand? I've got diphtheria. <laughs> then in 1891, influenza outbreak hit Chicago, so he left the state completely and went to live on his brother's cattle farm in Idaho and then met cow disease. <laughs> With school being a bust, like you're, yeah. not gonna, you're not going to learn school in Idaho which is what the sign says when you drive <laughs> in <laughs> schooling's for Nevada you want to learn something get to South Dakota
1: <laughs> can I bet that dog
0: while he was in Idaho he basically became a cowboy on his brother's farm an emphasis on boy because he was like 15 years old <laughs> and he spent most of his time with other cowboys and murderers because this was just a, it was a year after Idaho actually became a state so oh. it was still the wild west it was basically Australia yeah it was yeah. Australia now <laughs> <laughs> we all even even in an outbreak, we're still finding made-up ways to make fun of Australia. I'll be
1: like my dying breathwick. Well, what about Australia? Goodbye.
0: <laughs> so he spent about half a year here in Idaho, but a war started brewing between the cow people and the sheep people. Say that sentence again. A, slow. A war started brewing between the cow people and the sheep people, which led to his first story. <laughs> the cow people versus the sheep people. Which is ridiculous. Even for Idaho, that that there's a separation between the two, right? Yeah, the, no, it was two different. Like his his brother was part of the cow people, and then whoever else was part of I the sheep people. Think
1: about being a sheep people. That's
0: gross. <laughs> I'll be here with this cow. Moo <laughs> <laughs> moo. <moe>. Not baba. Moo <laughs> moo. His parents didn't want him being a part of that world anymore. Yeah. So they sent him back to school to Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. He failed at this and was expelled. So then he went to Michigan Military Academy in Orchard Lake, where He tried to drop out in his first year. (laughs) The cows, they call me. They wouldn't let him. So he stuck on and he managed to become a trick rider there and an ace shot. What's a trick writer? Like uh, like what you were telling me your grandpa did with ropes. But oh. Like, I, I assume that like, he would be on a horse doing rope tricks. Or okay. maybe he made the... Oh, I see. I don't know. Maybe he was Either prostituting horses. Or a writer. Writer. Not writer. No. Writer. He was not writing. He was never a writer. <laughs> he was always a writer. I've already established that. He was a writer, though. <laughs> <laughs> he graduated from this 1895, and he was hired as a teacher because he had applied to get into West Point, and he failed to get in. So now he had no idea what to do with his life. So teaching i'll just do that why not those who can't write those who can't ride <laughs> um join the sheep people <laughs> teaching it turned out was also not his thing so after a year he decided to join the military and thinking he could advance really quickly if he did something really heroic he requested to be placed in the most dangerous place he could so he was rejected by the rough riders which was uh was it teddy roosevelt yeah teddy roosevelt's yeah bang bang shoot his bang bang shoot club his <laughs> trick writers <his> trick <laughs> that overtook cuba (laughs) so he was rejected by the rough riders he ended up being placed in the seventh u.s cavalry which was custer's cavalry but this was post Custer. okay no Uh, custard cavalry not custard custer not rider rider got it wait a minute It's custard, isn't it? I've got custard in my pocket. (laughs) I'm sorry. I've been holding out on you. So he was stationed at Fort Grant in Arizona, where he said his job was to chase the Apaches. And once you caught them, sir? Well, here's the thing. He said, I chased a good many Apaches, but fortunately for me, I never caught up with any of them. He would have been killed immediately. Yeah, they they would
1: have made a toy of killing you. So
0: in reality, he was mostly just digging ditches and patrols where I don't think he actually saw any Apache, but this didn't work out for him either. Because while he was there, he found out he had a heart murmur. Which prevented him from being promoted any further in the military, so he had his rich Civil War veteran of a daddy pull some strings, and he got him discharged in 1897. So he's just he's constantly plugging, looking like, all right, am this, I gonna make money here? This is the thing. Yeah, uh, is, this is it. I think I can make money doing this. Yeah. Oh no. Oh, oh golly no. no. Oh no, it's hard. <laughs> now he decided to try his luck again in Idaho, where the the war was over. Yeah. Sheep bodies. Everywhere. Schools burning all the time. School is out forever <laughs> in Idaho. The sheep people and the cow people made up their differences. Yeah. Is there an I feel like I keep hearing alarms. If you hear my alarm go off again... I'll signal you. Yeah. Just come and tap me on the shoulder and then give me a quick nibble on the cheek. Um, (laughs) You could
1: whisper lovingly into my ear
0: that your alarm's going off. Can you just breathe in my nose when my alarm's
1: going National Guardman, will you tell Daniel that his alarm is going off?
0: Shoot, shoot, shoot. (laughs) So he's back to Idaho and now he was trying all sorts of businesses all of them failed. Every single one. He ran a stationery store, a dry goods store. He was an accountant. He did some more cow stuff. None of it worked. So in 1899, he moved back to Chicago where he went to work at his daddy's company, the American Battery Company. And that's not battery like assault and oh. battery like what I have in my pockets right now. I actually do have batteries in my pockets. <laughs> They're like potato batteries. During this time, he met and married a woman named Emma centennial holbert okay but by 19- is that three went or what oh no it was idaho there's no i in marriage <laughs> in idaho there is us us to hoe well, i'm avoiding a hoe joke so i want you to like appreciate
1: my class
0: by 1903 ew <clears throat> <clears throat> he got bored of working in batteries so they moved once again to idaho they're always going back to idaho where he worked at the swuster burroughs mining company i think he started with his brothers yeah oh as a gold miner With his brothers. (laughs) So he was a gold miner with his brothers. And then you're going to like this. He was a railway cop. Like a bull? What? Not a bull. Yeah, now I'm really confused. What's a bull?
1: A bull is a guy who... A bull is a guy who can't... (laughs) He like watches the rail yard and makes sure that
0: nobody's hopping on. Okay, yeah, that must have been him. He was bullying... Bully, whatever, whatever you're talking it, he about he could not be a bull but yeah so or he's he a railroad a, cop go ahead yeah he's a railroad cop a for cop. the Oregon Short Line Railroad Company in Salt Lake City did he watch the station or he, he was on the train as it was moving because that's different Listen, Greg, there's a pandemic going on. You think <laughs> you think I had time to go to Salt Lake City like <laughs> I always do to get information? <laughs> it doesn't matter. I don't go know. Ahead. They didn't go into details because I don't think he talked a lot about this part of his life because it was constant failure. So oh, why right. Would he he probably go- shot a guy who was like, can't do this. Then he got bored again and moved back to Chicago where he ran the stenographic department at Sears. Uh, at where? Sears. Sears. Not being shut closed with a fire instrument. Which the they would use to brand, brand the their bowls, But not- the cop who worked <laughs> the with. he was also an ad man at burroughs and denser again okay a company he must have started an office manager at a physician's cooperative a door-to-door salesman at the state burroughs company a manager at the system service bureau a snake oil salesman selling an alcohol cure Were like job fairs like buffets back then like I you just think- show up like okay yeah, i guess you could try everything look you make the joke of did you circle it in the newspaper Oh, yeah. Which I believe I wrote for you. Oh, but God. um must have just been like, hey, need a job? Come yeah, here. And you come have here. one. I have a long resume. It's not for this, though. It's for literally everything else. What's your experience? Well, I served under custard, <laughs> not the ice cream. <laughs> I was a bull, not the <laughs> animal. So then finally, by 1911, he had failed at so many things and still didn't know what he was meant to do with his life. Yeah. He applied to the chinese army the army from china <laughs> so he applied to fight in the chinese army you guessed it he was rejected no once why because he's not chinese look i'll use my limited chinese they told him Buyo. <laughs> Buyo, so then he moved on to his next job running the ad department for a pencil sharpener company <laughs> jeez i mean this is so many people's lives of like people who want to get rich quick or just like people who I don't know, but like... Are not
1: skilled at anything and have yeah. no ambition other than to just like... Make money. Have an ambition. Yeah. yeah. So
0: he was 35 years old. And I mean, can I th- you could you even imagine? <laughs> could you... Not having a stable job at 35. <laughs> can you imagine how... <laughs> Sitting in the park with his much younger and taller friend. <laughs> Pockets full of french fries. <laughs> Allegedly. So, <laughs> so he was 35 years old. He had a pregnant wife and two kids already. Joan and John and eventually uh, Holbert was uh-huh. the other kid. These... Crazy name. So no money, dead end job, no prospects. He was pawning jewelry just to get by. Wow. He, pawn. Like, <laughs> not like the chess game that I'm crushing you out right now. now. (laughs) Only
1: pawns left, by the way. That's my move.
0: I let you kill royalty and then I take you over with the pawn. I have a special rule where everything jumps over the pawns. I give (laughs) up my queen. I give up my king. I have a special rule where I pocket some of Greg's. So his life needed to change and by that, I mean he needed money and no more dead-end jobs (laughs) but he didn't know how. He didn't know how to do this. Part of his duties at the pencil sharpener company was that he had to make sure his ads were properly placed in the magazines they were printed in and these were mostly pulp sci-fi sorts of magazines. So he had a lot of downtime at his job so with all these magazines that are around he started reading them and it hit him he said i could fail at this now he said if people were paid for writing rot such as i read in some of those magazines i could write stories just as rotten <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> I what a ramon's philosophy of I, like i could do bad all by myself <laughs> i could be bad but better <laughs> i could do good bad writing wasn't completely new to him because yeah. just for fun he would make up poems and fantasy stories to okay. tell his children and his nieces and he nephews. also wrote tricks too um Greg, <laughs> do I need to get the homonym dictionary out? Because I have that in my pocket. I've got huge pockets. A big pocket. <laughs> I just wear a pocket with two leg holes in it. They're mahout pants, really. <laughs> but he never did anything that he seriously thought about you yeah. know just like oh I'll write this stupid thing until it's my stupid kids <laughs> knowing that writing was a potential revenue stream that he hadn't attempted before he thought I'm gonna give this a try so to try to maximize his chances he decided to center his story around something that was very popular at the time influenza <laughs> um, Mars okay they had just discovered canals on Mars so it was a big topic of interest I feel
1: like of the four writers we're gonna talk about three of them were maybe obsessed with Mars I don't know if yours is <laughs> obsessed with Mars
0: my two are for yeah, sure obsessed he with was Mars definitely obsessed with with mars. Yeah. and rightfully so <laughs> this story he wrote it was he wrote half of a story it was called under the moons of mars okay. so he covered not just the moon but also Mars. Yeah. where he introduced his first major contribution to the world the character of john carter right a confederate soldier who got teleported to mars by the sheer power of his racism
1: <laughs> <laughs> what am i gonna do with all this racism whoa! Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs>
0: what are you people i yeah. hate you
1: <laughs> i don't like the cut of your jib or the color of your skin <laughs> mostly both
0: <laughs> what do you believe i bet it's stupid you don't, you're not Jewish, are you? <laughs> so many people consider this story to be the inspiration for Superman. You know, that racist guy. <laughs> By the way, I don't know if John Carter was racist, but he was a Confederate. I've never read a John Carter story, yeah. but a, come on, a Confederate, Confederate. soldier gets... Yeah. He doesn't just like... Flip a switch. I mean, travel does enlighten you, so maybe if you really travel. God to enslave Mars. To to become
1: rich off the backs of Martians.
0: People consider like I was saying, they consider this to be the inspiration for Superman. Yeah. Because you know, a guy goes to another planet, becomes like a savior, basically. Which this Superman came out twenty-six years after this. Twenty-six years. So he sent this half of a story to the editor of All Story Magazine to ask if this was into this sort of thing. So he asked Depends who wrote it. Oh jeez. So he asked if this was the sort of thing that that this magazine would buy. And if he said no to him, that would have been the end of his writing career. He's yeah. like, I right, can't make money. I, I'm going to go. Maybe I can sell water balloons yeah so for- fortunately the guy said it has potential but if you finish it i'll buy it from you so he did he finished the story under the moons of Mars came out serialized in the february to july 1912 issues of all story magazine he got paid 400 oh wow and when it was published as a book later it was called a princess a princess of mars <laughs> that was considered to be a major turning point for science fiction really so he has a hit right off the bat yeah his first thing he ever wrote seriously that must have he must have not known how to respond to that
1: he was I, a sat alone for a I'm long
0: time doing well at my job we're going to you 400 we can't wait to see what you come up with next are you firing me is that my severance package <laughs> because my next job is going to be something in construction <laughs> so it's not only crazy that a writer's first thing is like a huge hit but a a writer who had failed at so much yeah. stuff is now doing well so it n- seems to
1: be like every writer since then has that followed that model
0: Every single writer has been greatly successful right off the bat. So now it's time for a second one. For his next story, he really wanted to write a historical fiction tale set in old England with a Confederate soldier. Robert E. Lee got transported (laughs) to jolly old England, not so jolly anymore, is it? So the magazine editors were like, "No, we give us pulp. We want space. We want weird stuff." He wrote another space thing called Deja Thoris, Martian Princess, which he felt was so weird that he was worried his publisher would think he was insane. So he sent it in under the fake name normal bean say the name again normal bean wow as in my brain's normal <laughs> That's bean. don't check me don't you dare know, send me to a doctor <laughs> so he eventually changed it to norman bean and then at one point he also used john tyler mccullough for some i don't know what sort of yeah. what's that pun
1: uh, it's almost like oh yeah normal beats a joke my name is the name that you just <laughs> said That my i don't don't remember john
0: tyler mccullough <laughs> oh no that's now, a john normal T- name <laughs> too right no john tyler mccullough is popular and <laughs> no one wants edgar rice i'm oh, john paul jones i'm davy jones <laughs> so that was the name for this second story so now for his third one he wanted to do something a little different something closer to home than mars but still different and exotic from a place that might as well have been mars for him and how likely it was he had ever been there just past Idaho. Anywhere outside of Salt Lake City, <laughs> Idaho or Chicago. Where? Africa. Okay. Mother Africa. In the October 1912 issue of All Story, which was just three months after the Mars story yeah. wrapped up its its run, he had his new serial, Tarzan of the Apes.
1: Was this at all influenced by... They just discovered canals in Africa. Yeah, and they're just like, do we got. It. Wh- what must could been, be in there? Yeah, there?
0: yeah, must have been Africa in the news, and he's like, yeah. oh, I could do that. So he sold this one for $700, cool. and even more so than the Mars story, this one was huge. Yeah. So they shot this one around as a book, but for some reason people kept saying no until 1914 when it finally came out as a book, and this thing blew up like nothing had ever blown up before. Right. This was the
1: Beatlemania of the what, yeah. 20s? or uh,
0: Teens. Teens, teens the okay. The early teens. Yeah, it was, everyone had their Tarzan wigs <laughs> on, Which, we, they kind of did. They, they would they would literally drop a book on the ground and it would just women, girls screaming at it. Yeah.
2: Uh, crying. crying, yeah.
0: So people bought this story up like they had an ape man deficiency. <laughs> like it was toilet paper during a coronavirus
1: outbreak. <laughs> hey, Am I right now, boy? Oh, well, let me eat these. I haven't prize. washed my butt in nine days. Which is barely longer than I normally do.
0: <laughs> so he wrote sequels to Tarzan. In all, there were 24 sequels to Tarzan.
1: Are you going to, at some point, talk about... You'll probably get to you reading Tarzan, right?
0: Uh, no, I didn't, but we could talk about it. Okay. The ending of Tarzan made me cry. Like, yeah, it's, you, were, you
1: were, like, shook up a little bit. It
0: was... Okay, so here's the thing, that which I kind of get to a little bit later. His books are so readable, because they they were serials. So it's, yeah. like, like, every three chapters will basically end with, like, a cliffhanger yeah. or this huge plot point, and you'll wanna keep reading because yeah. that's how that's how pulp works. And that and that's what makes pulp so wonderful and accessible is that it's not
1: weighed down by describing the decorative yeah, arches of a, is, col- like the columns of a building it's just like we're here and we're here and we go yeah, and we're here
0: we'll kind of get into what is art a little yeah. bit later but like this isn't you know like I'm not reading like Henry David Thoreau yeah, exactly, describing yeah. a winter for 40 pages <laughs> this is so readable and we'll get into the con- like you know the, the problematic nature of Tarzan yeah, yeah, for sure but the story of it is so
1: people like what we're doing hi, hi. Tarzan How- fans How-
0: by the way, there's people coming up behind you also. This is making me so nervous. Yeah. What was I talking about before? We everyone, were talking about Art versus. all of pulp. our fans yeah. found us. There was so much snuck into that story that was so much more heartbreaking than I ever expected yeah. from Tarzan. You
1: kind of just thought like he bangs his chest and you're Jane and I'm um, Tarzan. Exactly.
0: Which I was fully prepared for. <laughs> if that's all the book was, I would have been happy. But yeah. there was so much more to it. It's understandable why this became so popular. Because it had a little bit more going for it than like the story of the killer. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) how dare you?
1: Um, were you taken aback reading about having read Tarzan, Mm -hmm. having felt something by Tarzan and then reading how he failed at everything?
0: Were you like, no, I kind of like that because with both of my authors, it, I mean, maybe this is just hope for myself of like, yeah. he didn't write his first thing till he was 35.
1: Yeah. It, and he ate it for a long time in his life and he thought that that was the end. And then yeah. a Lark was like, I can write about an it, ape man.
0: It kind of was uh, a little bit disheartening of like, oh, you were only doing this for money. I don't know if you enjoyed this, but you could do this and you could make money off yeah. of this, which is kind of like, oh, but well, where's the, like, who cares? Who cares? Yeah. And you found an audience
1: and the audience is still talking and about you. And it's good. And it's like, good. <laughs> so, it's, yeah. So, <laughs> that James M. Kane hated, I think he hated all of his pulp stories, I, but that's all anyone wanted to read. Like No one I, remembers yeah. anything he wrote other than that. Yeah,
0: I like that more so than a writer who's too precious about, about yeah. the craft, yeah. which is a great pulp story. <laughs> okay, so this was a huge hit. There were Tarzan costumes, there were Tarzan bathing suits, there was Tarzan ice cream, Yeah, Tarzan toilet paper, which <laughs> it's, I it's still, just leaves. I, I can't bear myself to open that package. It's a collector's <laughs> item. Yeah, Here's I'll just take just a bunch of showers. Leave, just leaves, old leaves. So there was a daily Tarzan comic strip in newspapers worldwide. There was a Tarzan radio show that starred his daughters joan really? as jane really with her husband playing tarzan
1: oh, that's great Did they, they didn't put it on what do you mean they weren't like broadcasting out of their house no, like well, they found like
0: two people well, during the epidemic they, were. <laughs> they went to park every week <laughs> they recorded it for six feet apart In some some area of the valley i don't know what it's called though hey be quiet <laughs> Ooh, a topless man is walking by let's just ogle all the people now <laughs> i know whoa like a Tex Avery <laughs>
1: character just hitting my head with a mallet
0: so this was the first fictional character to what Sorry, there's an airplane. Sorry, people aren't respecting the rules of travel right now. That's how far
1: I need you to be away from me, is helicopter distance.
0: So this was the first fictional character to really become a branded sensation like this. It was pre-Zorro. And like I said, it was decades before Superman. So this was the first big thing. Yeah. Biggest of all were the movies. The first attempt at a movie of Burroughs stuff was 1970s The Lady and the Lion by the Selig Polyscope Company, which are two things that will never be remembered. (laughs) Also, when I read 1917, I was thinking about the movie... Like what was going on in the movie 1917 (laughs) and then meanwhile in Hollywood (laughs) The Lady and the Lion by the Stelling polyscope company. Are
1: you sure this This lion skin thing fits me well?
0: Don't mind that face paint. (laughs) Um, Sure it's offensive but it's also toxic. This won't be offensive until we're dead. Which will be soon. <laughs> but the first Tarzan movie was a 1918 silent by the National Film Corporation of America starring Elmo Lincoln. Oh. Which was Abraham Lincoln's forgotten son. <laughs> More of a puppet than a son. <laughs> it premiered on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles and became the first movie ever to make a million dollars. Wow, really? Yeah, so the talkie versions, the you know, they made so many of these, so many of these movies. The talkie versions were starring Olympian Johnny Weissmuller, who we've talked about yeah. in the 30s through the 40s. And all they've made... 41 Tarzan movies Are you which Burroughs hated. <laughs> he hated all the movies? Or very quickly. Very movies. quickly. Okay. Uh, the man who's doing this just for money is not going to hate that they're oh, making movies. True. But I, I think, you know, the first he was on board for a little bit but like after yeah. a while he started hating it. Yeah. There were 57 Tarzan TV episodes also so, so far. Yeah. Once my pilot gets sold <laughs> there will be 57 in New York? <laughs> Tarzan during the coronavirus <laughs> which is all I've been working on. <laughs> so what this meant for Burroughs was that his new job was a full-time writer and his money problems were over for now. (laughs) With all this new money lying around and all these TV movie things and radio shows being made in Los Angeles, he figures, why not? Why am I not living in Los Angeles? Yeah, well, cut off the middleman, which is Idaho. Cut off the middleman, which is a game we used to play in Idaho when we would (laughs) butcher the sheep people. Today
1: as the middleman. Oh, no. My name was pulled from a a bag of rocks.
0: Because they didn't have paper. (laughs) Idiots. You Idaho idiot. (laughs) You're almost as stupid as the people from Australia. (laughs) This happened in 1919 when he bought five... 550 acres of land in the San Fernando Valley from none other... Then our old friend of the LA Times, Harrison Gray Otis. You're kidding. That's who we bought the land for. This land was- in You're th- that Tarzan guy? I hate it. I believe he's a commie. <laughs> this land was in the hills above the southern end of what is now Reseda Boulevard and under Otis it was called Rancho del Cabrillo <laughs> with his enormous mansion on the property. The house was called Miraflores. <laughs> which is how Dracula would say it.
1: Like this. <laughs> Rancho de Dracula.
0: Rancho de Dracula. <laughs> so under Burroughs it would be renamed in honor of where all the this money came from. John Carter of Mars Ranch. You're no, it was no, no, You're no. Come on, man. come on. You're right, you doing just rip- I'm yoking. <laughs> I'm making a yoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Tarzana Ranch. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it cost. Never heard of it. It cost him one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, which is an insane number both then and today, but for different reasons. <laughs> and it was worth it. The property went all the way up the hill, basically, it, like kind of stretched into Malibu. Like really? this is a massive amount of land. There were gardens. And it was also like all done for him because Otis had made it it also like, yeah, you just step right up. Yeah, it's fully furnished. Step right up. There were gardens, orchards, horses, pigs, cows, no sheep, (laughs) chickens. (laughs) Clearly uh, lines were drawn in the sand a long (laughs) time ago. I'll be goddamn rootin' tootin' hell if (laughs) there's a (laughs) a sheep (laughs) in my property. All of them were branded with a Tarzan symbol. You're kidding. So they knew what the property was. Ah, ah, ah.
1: it's more of a King Kong brand.
0: (laughs) It also said that there were registered GOATS. Which I assume means goats that had to go door to door when they moved in to tell all their neighbors that they were goats. I don't know what they meant by that. I, I hate to
1: disturb you and this is very uncomfortable but I'm a goat. I'm going to probably eat everything around you, so... Uh. I, can't,
0: I can't live within 30 feet of a haystack. So the house itself had 20 rooms, including a ballroom, a huge library, and a dining hall. Every Friday, he'd invite the staff who worked on the estate and all of his neighbors to come over to watch a movie. And about 200 people would come every single week to watch a movie in Edgar Rice Burroughs' house. That's a party. That's a party, which I was reading that the way we think of things today. Like, that's not safe. Like, we can't no, do that. that's
1: not safe. I'm dying to go to one of these parties now. That would be so cool. If you're somebody who has a giant home with a library and a, yeah. and a dance hall inside, have me and Daniel a well, <laughs> Have me and Daniel, but he won't come.
0: What? No, sorry. It's the distance. Diff- what the hell (laughs) the hell are you saying I'd fight you if I didn't die from doing it if it wasn't against the WHO (laughs) standards I would punch you right in the mall right now eventually he built a second house on mecca avenue there he ride his horses around the property every morning and he genuinely loved this place he said it took god millions of years to get tarzana and me together and i have to give him credit for pulling off at least one very successful job <laughs> i believe this is one of the loveliest spots in the world he even wrote a, don't you dare make a joke about if you make a yoke about tarzana, <laughs> tarzana? Right now, he would know about unsuccessful jobs It's Um, not a joke about Tarzana. It's a joke about the people who live in Tarzana. (laughs) He even wrote a song about it called My Own Tarzana Ranch. Really? Sing it for us. It went a little something like like this. Hang on. Can you give me an A? (laughs) You got your A. You got your A. Pine no more my lassie and my little lad be gay, which also means something completely (laughs) different right now. For we're going back to our own Tarzana Ranch to our own Tarzana ranch far away. Wow. But he wasn't a songwriter. Stick to the- And he was barely a pulp writer. (laughs) (laughs) Stick to the jungle, buddy. They've got fun and games, not songs. (laughs) In 1933, he was even elected mayor of Malibu, which I really hope it was an honorary title. He even let his new setting seep into his writing. He wrote something called The Girl from Hollywood about a girl who leaves her small town just outside Hollywood to make it big in pictures and end up losing touch with her family completely in the seediness and darkness of Los Angeles. And this was written way before Raymond Chandler laid down the law of who could write about seedy Los Angeles. (laughs) Like he- he, And little girls lost. Before Raymond Chandler writing all of his poems to Tarzana. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I downgraded it to (laughs) poems. He even started to seep into the city around him when in 1927, plans were put in place to build a post office in his part of the valley. But to do that, they needed an official name for that part of town. Originally, it was going to be called Runnymede, but there was already a Runnymede in Northern California. So to avoid confusion, they were going by runny two. too <laughs> even runnier for a while they were going by that but a group of locals started a petition to rename the area after their most prized citizen and his property which was named after his prized creation john carter wood <laughs> I mean Tarzana. <laughs> so the position went through and on July 20th, 1928, they officially voted to rename that part of the valley Tarzana. Not everyone was on board with this. The Tarzana Library for years refused to carry any of his books because they dismissed it as pulp. Really? In 19- a
1: library? A
0: library. A library in the 30s before there that were... Before, before, before they, they had equal more... Equal information? Yeah. Libraries back then were just like ways for rich people to get maps of things. <laughs> the Sino Tar- tarzana Library now has a special Edgar Rice... I'll post a picture I took of it. Is your hand sanitizer okay? It's not spilling out? Oh, no. That's like $20 (laughs) worth that just oozed out. It's okay. I'll just take the dirt home. (laughs) (laughs) The dirt sanitary now. In 1936, some residents even started a petition of their own to rename the the city to something classier, but nobody takes down Tarzan, so the name stuck. (laughs) But back in the early 20s on the ranch Burroughs he was his happiest here than he had ever been in his life until he wasn't. (laughs) He failed at being happy. (laughs) Some people just can't escape their money troubles, no matter how much money they make so on march 26 1923 he did something that was unheard of for authors at the time and he turned himself into a corporation oh wow he started edgar rice burroughs inc to publish his own books and also manage all of his merchandise and the rights to his works for movies tv and radio it seems like a good move right well people thought at the time this was insane because he was doing this they felt churning out all these different types of media and merchandise that he ended up doing the movies the ice cream it would end up competing against himself and dilute his success in writing as we already discussed these people could not have been more wrong he yeah. this is what most authors do now so yeah. he was way ahead of everybody in doing this this yeah. was just a way to protect his money yeah and make more money which was dumb yeah, <laughs> it was a new job it was dumb according to the critics <laughs> problem was even with all this money old burroughs still liked buying horses cars and alcohol right so in an attempt to get more money in 1922 he started selling off parts of his property to be subdivided right. into new plots of land so he sold 50 acres from where Tarzana Drive is down to Ventura Boulevard between Avenida Oriente wow. and Mecca, which made room for 63 businesses and 139 homes. Wow. This was followed by even more the next year. They were marketing the area as the gateway to the sea. And I don't know how you get to the sea from no. there. And
1: uh, the gateway to the gateway to the sea.
0: <laughs> the ads read that these new plots were an artistic colony on high-class residential acres open to all who expressed artistic desires through the medium of picture flowers or vegetables, furniture, drug, plumbing, poetry, or the screen, but artists in each his own field and each a lover of the beautiful. Chosen by Edgar Rice Burroughs, author of the Tarzan stories, Tarzana is the pride of the beautiful San Fernando Valley. Say it. Go. I dare you. Say it. You know it is so nice of you to say. (laughs) Do you know that you can buy one of these acres for $1,500, the price of a city lot in the poor district? (laughs) So this didn't work. So he had some guy dressed as Tarzan getting people to buy stuff instead. Did that work? It worked a little bit. And if you wanted a plot of land, you would literally send a check or an envelope full of cash to Edgar Rice Burroughs office and you'd be a landowner. Like That's all it took. That office was at 18354 Ventura Boulevard. It's still there as the headquarters of the Burroughs company where they they run the trademark on Tarzan they sue that's everyone. still out here it's right across the street from, fittingly, the Black Bear Diner where where the um, sugar mill is. It's right across the street. Is it? It's there. I want to go there, and I dare them to sue me. (laughs) I dare you. I dare them to kick me out. I'm going to make another George of the Jungle. I dare you to sue me. You're trespassing my heart with your (laughs) Tarzan stories. (laughs) How about I sue you for making me embarrassed (laughs) in front of my macho friends? (laughs) But his money troubles weren't getting any better, so in 1924, his family moved out of the old Otis Manor and into that smaller house they had built so they could use the manor as the clubhouse for the El Cabal Country club that he built on the property for even more income. So then this whole tenuous situation came crashing down with, you guessed it, the depression. Um boy. What were you going to say? Uh, a big ape?
1: Kind of. All of this came crashing down when King Kong came on the scene. Skull, I always compare Tarzan and King Kong.
0: They're like, oh, you, do, know, do you know
1: each other? I <laughs> always think that. Did, <laughs> Did you, you know each cross other? paths? Yeah. Did you go to college together? <laughs> like when King Kong emerges from the gate, I want to turn Tarzan like, you know about this? You didn't say anything? You didn't stop this? <laughs> you didn't
0: stop this from happening? <laughs> you didn't kill him when he was a kid? <laughs> Burroughs had invested heavily in the stock market, and he lost most of that during the crash. Okay. Then the country club went bankrupt, but he still had to pay the mortgage on it, so he lost the property, and the property was turned into a public golf course called the tarzana golf course which is now once again known as el caballero so we could you know if they didn't keep people like us out we could go golf there you know waiting for a membership to come in the mail in the meekly mail the next thing he lost was his wife in 1934 not not like that though they got divorced oh oh, 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 oh.
1: she's in a better place
0: (laughs) (laughs) beverly hills (laughs) um so he could remarry a woman half his age florence gilbert deerholt who was the ex-wife of one of the actors from the tarzan movie and then They did. They moved to Beverly Hills. So now with the family he had fought so hard for, dissolved, he finally sold off what remained of Tarzana Ranch for good in the late 30s for $30,000 and moved with his new wife to Hawaii, Whoa! the safest place to be at the outbreak of World War II. (laughs) Oh no, Pearl Harbor. Burroughs decides after Pearl Harbor to take it upon himself to provide his worth once more to the military and help America win the war. Okay. He started with divorcing his new young wife (laughs) and then he- Beat him. <laughs> You're Thank welcome, that. Uncle Sam. Are you saying
1: Heinrich Himmler? Then
0: he joined up as the oldest war correspondent in the country and he did reports on the troops in the Pacific. Really? Yeah. So he, apparently he also covered the Marion Parker murder for oh. the Hearst newspapers yeah. when that happened. Marion Parker. So he had experienced newspapers writing a little bit.
1: Yeah trying to keep your fries warm? by like stuffing I'm old pages into your
0: lap? I don't want them to blow away because who knows what's on them. And oh, I'm right. going to self-immolate after this. <laughs> this is the kindling. I'm any message from Mission Impossible. <laughs> I'm a movie by the Cohen brothers. <laughs> but that old heart of his started acting up again and after a series of heart attacks he had to come home from war. Oh that's
1: right he had a murmur. Yeah. And a, and murmur. It,
0: a murmur. <laughs> a moo moo. He's got a heart moo moo. <laughs> that's probably what the physician from 1890 18- yeah. Arizona Territory Cavalry yeah. Sorry, but you got a heart, Moo You got to go home now. He had to come home, not anywhere where else to do. He went back to as close to his precious Tarzana as he could. Not so precious Encino. Oh, yeah. Because he didn't have the house there. So he, and he couldn't buy of yeah. Tarzana. So and an
1: Encino Man hadn't been made yet, so it wasn't hip.
0: Isn't that funny that that's kind of an ape thing? Yep huh
1: he's a caveman if you want me to give my four-hour criticism on encino man the film
0: if you want me to read my thesis on encino man relating to tarzan (laughs) and how we really live a daniel Zaffron thesis he continued writing his writing here and he even used some of his wartime experience in his work such as tarzan and the foreign legion oh my god he became a little suit up tarzan put on your most lethal loincloth (laughs) he became a little cantankerous in his later days referring to himself as ob which people assumed was old burrows but it was actually old bastard whoa he, he wrote in 1948 52 years ago an army doctor gave me six months to live and i'll bet the goddamn old drunk has been dead for 20 years
1: get him that'll show a guy who tried to help me
0: that'll show that doctor who saved your life <laughs> but not long after that that old heart of his finally caught up with him and on march 19th 1950 he died of a heart attack in bed reading the sunny funny pages Poor guy. in encino his- he was laughing so
1: hard at like little nemo or
0: family circus yeah you- <laughs> the old family circus his ashes were spread under the walnut tree in front of his ventura boulevard office edgar rice Burroughs' legacy though he's not entirely as popular now as he once was yeah. can't be understated oh yeah his The book sold over a hundred million copies. It was printed in fifty-six languages. At the height of his popularity, his paperback books accounted for three percent of all the paperback sales in the country. Wow. Making him the most read American author of the first half of the twentieth century. Yeah. And it was easy to see why, because like I said, they're so easy to read. Mm -hmm. Ray Bradbury thought that he was the most important author of the twentieth century, and even Jane Goodall was such a fan that she was jealous when Tarzan married Jane (laughs) instead of her. (laughs) The other Jane. I'm more qualified. <laughs> I'm the obvious choice. Yeah, I've been writing papers f- for years. He was prolific. He was crazy prolific. He all, he wrote almost 100 things, including, I believe, 68 books, not including an unfinished Tarzan book that they found after he died. And he created three massive franchises. There was John Carter, there was Tarzan, and then he also did a whole Hollow Earth pelucidar series which was also very popular and scientifically factual (laughs) he also became the first person to do crossovers when he once had tarzan visit the hollow earth of pelucidar that's pretty funny it's pronounced yeah and all of this came from
1: him wanting to like if i write weird enough they'll pay me they'll pay me
0: in his prime he was writing an average of three books a year damn that's he he kept a ledger to keep track of how many words he wrote during a day to make sure he met his deadlines and he was writing about 10 to 12 new pages every single day his theory was was if you write one story it may be bad if you write a hundred stories you have the odds in your favor yeah he did all of this for his family right if he hadn't started being paid for writing these stories he would have just moved on to find something else that would and this all became sort of a family local family yeah. business his son john illustrated the books eventually his daughter played jane like i said yeah his grandkids went to see son so it was a local sort of enterprise yeah. and the city values him right back they unveiled the tarzan stamp at the Tarzana post office which you and I once went to a long time ago and there was all that we're like why is all this Tarzan stuff and one lady turned around and she's like Tarzan lived here
1: (laughs) that's right I remember that I remember being scolded by somebody at the
0: at the post office I couldn't remember I
1: I didn't know that it was yeah she was
0: she was mortally wounded that we didn't know that Edgar Rice Burroughs lived in Tarzana or make the connection Jane Burroughs the main strip of Ventura that runs through Tarzana was named the Safari Walk in 1998 he also has a crater on Mars named after him Really, Which I would I would literally kill for. But you can't discuss Edgar Rice Burritos without the controversies. Anytime a white author writes something in the early 1900s that takes place in Africa, you know you're in for something. Oh
1: yeah, for sure. The, what is this, a cat in an H.P. Lovecraft story? What? Do you know what the cat's name is?
0: No, really. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, huh. Awful. Anyways, yeah. go ahead. There were some not-so-flattering portrayals of Africans in the books, and even deeper than that, the idea of a white guy born of british nobility that grows up in the to rule the jungles of africa is very oh yeah but also very of the time this isn't more racist than the accepted level of racism at the time which is to say it's still racist you know
1: like it's not like it's not trying harder to be the most racist thing exactly he wasn't
0: hb lovecraft (laughs) Um, but it also didn't help that this was around the time of white flight and all the racial housing covenants so knowing that he was like people like Mars, I'm gonna write about Mars. Yeah. Like like you can't help but feel like something seeped in. Like you kinda knew a little bit about what you were Yeah. What you meant by all this. On a less important level, the book was also controversial amongst anthropologists who felt that a man who could swing around trees like that could never have been raised by apes. That's ridiculous. <laughs> he must have been raised by orangutans. Get it right.
1: Get it right, guy who's just doing this for money and did a little research.
0: Get it right, the guy who probably never even saw a chimp. (laughs) The man himself was also pretty conservative. He was very outspoken against Japanese internment, but he was also very pro-eugenics, which apparently most people were at the time, which means it's right. (laughs) The only reason he didn't have sympathy for the Nazis was because he hated Germans so much. But putting all that aside, if you can, (laughs) you can't deny the impact he's made on pop culture. Like I was saying, you can dismiss pulp, as a lot of people do, but name one thing that t.s Eliot wrote yeah even if you can name one person who has actually read it read it and enjoyed it everybody knows edgar rice burroughs most famous creation and you probably even hear the roar in your head yeah. when you hear that name yeah john carter of <laughs> mars yeah that's edgar rice burroughs well you started off uh, you started us off off you started us <sighs> it's my lips are getting cold yeah. and it's kind of hard to enunciate to things so bad. i'm starving i haven't eaten since Mafungo,
1: you started us off
0: really well because we're going to talk about oh, two please. people. Come on, come on, come um, on! This whole audience that gathered <laughs> six feet away from us—do you all agree? you don't agree you're uh, here for uh, fries uh, in uh, the uh, pocket yeah. <laughs> you smell the french fries you're not humans you're a bunch of dogs that got loose
1: the next two people i want to talk about are incredibly influenced by edgar rice burroughs mm-hmm. and tarzan and john carter first one we're going to talk about is somebody i've mentioned a couple times in previous episodes and i've always wanted to concentrate on her if we ever got to a writer episode and here we are let me talk about lee brackett
0: i always wanted to talk about her if we were in a lockdown quarantine situation <laughs> pull the cord it's happening this segment's gonna be called sincerely muscles yeah, right, we'll get to I, it. I thought we were done with Tarzan, but Lee Brackett was born on December 7th,
1: 1915 A day that will live long before Pearl Harbor was attacked She's a hometown hero Born and raised in Santa Monica And an address I cannot find for the life of me She was raised by her mother
0: What? Did they have addresses back then? Yeah, you're by The Rock. You're yeah. Two houses down from The Rock. Do you live on beach or road?
1: <laughs> she was raised by her mother, Margaret, and her maternal grandparents after her dad died of the flu pandemic of 1919 that swept the globe.
0: Two authors so far affected yep. by this, seriously. Her family moved around the country quite a bit before- Who said th- we're not topical?
1: <laughs> Who said they're not relevant?
0: Who said they're not funny?
1: Crowd? <laughs> You're jeering us.
0: Who said that they're calling the police?
1: <laughs> her family moved around the country quite a bit before settling down in Los Angeles. I can't even find out whereabouts. Like, her early years are kind of like the same. Five things over and over, but I can't find where they lived. I know that she at some point lived when she was pretty young in Pasadena, not far from the home of Howard Hawks. I don't even know if he was living there at the time, though. Like Burroughs, she moved around quite a bit. Her education was not stable. Mm-hmm. Um, Authors are
0: dumb. We know that.
1: We know that, right? Her moment comes when she's eight years old, when someone gives her a copy of Edgar Rice Burroughs' The Gods of Mars, and she says, Wow, I was never the same after that suddenly I became aware of
0: other worlds out there and then from that time
1: on I was destined to be a science fiction writer
0: I've already in, in me as Edgar Rice Burroughs have already influenced both of your people take that Take the, the that. hell have you done for me
1: I guess I'll be reading your research now <laughs> I'm not touching that paper um, come on touch it shake my hand shake my hand hey, don't stop being rude and shake my hand I did a good job shake my hand she attended a private girls school in Santa Monica and was by They're all just accounts just like
0: Edgar Rice Burroughs
1: <laughs> that's how she knew him they were dual prom <laughs> she was by all accounts a tomboy she was tall she was rebellious and she was athletic. All the things you need to be a pulp action hero. She excelled at volleyball. Her most tomboy characteristic was reading books meant for boys. Like the works of Robert E. Howard who created Conan, <laughs> C.L. Moore who I didn't know was a female until I started doing research, Edgar Rice Burroughs and H. Ryder Haggard. Haggard? H-A-G-G-A-R-D. Haggard. Oh, like Merle Haggard. Like Merle Haggard. Yeah. Merle Haggard's uh, his little boy. She was a lifelong fan of science fiction and much of her fiction was born out of her love of Tarzan and John Carter stories. She was it's so crazy. excited by these stories that she began of course writing her own amazing stories around the age of 13. Another influence was the theater program at her school where she was introduced to plays and from what I could tell was writing them and watching them performed. She declined as a- co- What? Gumption. Gumption. She declined a college scholarship- you're gonna have to say what. Wh- what? <laughs> she declined this college scholarship because she <laughs> knew it was gonna be too pricey for her family to handle but she kept writing and submitting stories to the pulp sci-fi magazine she was poring over. Again- The exact timeline of how and what years her career started going are hard to trace. But I'm going to try to do my best. And feel free to correct me if you know the the biography of Lee Brackett. Her (laughs) grandfather was a great support to her in getting her to sell her stories first. Who seems to be the only family member who supported her writing science fiction. A lot of people were like, why don't you write for Ladies Home Journal? She's like, I don't read it. And if I did, I wouldn't be able to write for them. But they pay well, so I wish I could. Do they publish stories about little green aliens? (laughs) I have a story about a fist that comes to life on its (laughs) own. Does Ladies Home Journal... (laughs) <laughs> Will they take that? But another big help came from a fellow writer. She was attending writing courses taught by a well-known author writing self-help books, Lawrence De Orsay himself, a writer of stories that frequently ended up in literary magazines like Weird Tales. The Orsay had his own literary agency, the Orsay Agency, and at some point, a man working at the Orsay Agency comes across her manuscript and he finds it in the bad pile and he saves it. This is up-and-coming writer henry Cutner, who i've mentioned on this podcast a couple times before not a spectacular writer but a great haver of ideas
0: never heard of him
1: uh, we've even based like a creepy christmas hanukkah intro on graveyard rats which is his big one now that was me that was, a that was all original. me baby <laughs> i hold him up there with charles beaumont like his writing isn't anything spectacular but the ideas you're reading are like oh mm. this is f- frightening yeah. and upsetting This would make a good 30 minute tv show Th- it might <laughs> occasionally it would occasionally, make a good yeah. TV show. Anyways, Cutner saved bracket stories from being rejected. He saw her what Brackett called limping efforts at sci-fi and fantasy, and wrote her on his own time. He wrote her and limping? gave her a long and detailed criticism of her story, which I would have cried. That if. doesn't
0: sound like a man to do to a woman a <laughs> uh, criticism. With punchline. <laughs> unwarranted critique of something she worked really hard on <laughs> this peer support out of nowhere must have fueled her to keep going at a time
1: when most writers are feeling really worthless he helped her get an agent which was of course his own agent but the biggest influence he had on bracket though other than critiquing her stories was introducing her to the gang robert Heinlein, four sacraments they jumped her in Julius shorts jack williamson edmund hamilton and the fellow new kid on the block a guy just out of high school Ray Bradbury mm. and the many, many others of the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society. This year was 1939. She was 24 years old and Lee Brackett found her people. She quickly joined their ranks,
0: both spiritually and officially joining the group. She spiritually paid her membership dues, <laughs> which was a big bowl of jello for everybody from Clifton's.
1: Which is just free limeade, apparently. Uh, this
0: dude doesn't like a cut of our jib. Now, that's the look of a fan. That Yeah, a faraway far away glare who's Kind of walking, like a vulture. Strutting sh- very slowly in circles. Around us. I like him. I want to shake his hand.
1: What's your name, sir? She also would frequently join an informal, unofficial group that would meet at Robert Heinlein's home on Lookout Mountain up Laurel Canyon in the Hollywood Hills, close to Houdini's mansion at 8777 hmm. Lookout Mountain. The group was called the Manana Literary Society, and they would okay. just like have fun and drinks at his house and go over stories and talk pulp with fans and writers. Did they ever go to Edgar Rice Burroughs' house for a movie? they not that Why not? Like, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) they were close. That's the thing. I never read, like, oh, they must have met Burroughs at some point,
0: but... well, he was, I mean, at that point, that's like, we're doing open mic comedy. Certainly, we'll run into right. Jerry Seinfeld. Right, and right, we'll, right, right, And we'll just, yeah, he'll invite us over. That's true, though. Which but is they're... the dream. <laughs> Which
1: is the dream. He comes out of the bathroom. <laughs> I need to go in the bathroom. We have that weird, like, who's going to go first? And yeah, then suddenly, and then we both go
0: in the bathroom. He's helping me write
1: jokes. Suddenly, <laughs> it's, it's a mirror in the bathroom situation. <laughs> the next year, her first short story, Martian Quest, was published in Astounding Science Fiction in their February issue. This was followed by The Treasure of Patukuth, in the same publication, Astounding Magazine, between 1940 and 1943, she pumped out a series of short stories that would be published in Planet Stories, Startling Stories, and Super
0: Science Fiction. (laughs) Story stories. Story stories, fiction stories, Story fictions. Book stories. Book st- magazine. <laughs> the magazine. Short stories. <laughs> science. The fiction. Short story long stories. The story <laughs> short stories. St- short story long. Uh, long story short.
1: They were said to be like simple, almost forgettable, but her writing continues at this point to get better, and it all leads to a short story she wrote in 1944 for the spring issue of Thrilling Wonder Stories called <laughs> The Veil of Astellar.
0: I wish we could keep a tally of the stupid names we've gone over so Oh, for far. sure. Like John Carter. Uh,
1: imagine like, I got a name for a stupid publication that I'm sure isn't taken, and I you think. say it like, that's taken. Uh, <laughs> I that was written that. four different
0: times by eight <laughs> different famous writers. But also, what a stupid name Tarzan is. Like, yeah. It's such a common name to us now, but yeah. like, imagine when it first came out. Like, what? What? People must what? have been like this.
1: What? <laughs> Why can't his name be like Adam? How He's about, the first man.
0: How about, how about instead of Tarzan and Jane, Adam and Jane?
1: <laughs> Am I right? Crowd over there. They're walking
0: away. <laughs> Am I right? Crowd of eugenics supporters. <laughs> so the Veil vale of Astar was like, it was her
1: first change in like ability like you it was markedly different well-written and significantly different space opera that was what she was really good at was mm. something called space operas
0: mm. interesting her skill at handling I wonder sp- if that skill set will come in handy
1: <laughs> no, probably not her skill at handling space operas and planetary romances will come into play later oh you, <laughs> you must a <have> red light. <laughs> i wonder if that wait you say? will come into later wait oh. that
0: echo echo delay
1: that's funny <laughs> things were looking up And her friend's group seemed to be the exact support system she needed in her life. She was dating fellow sci-fi writer Edmund World Wrecker Hamilton. He was nicknamed that because in every story at the last chapter, Earth would be saved. Very last chapter. And every Sunday, Lee Brackett would meet the new kid, Ray Bradbury, at Muscle Beach at the volleyball court in Venice. And the two would critique each other's stories about her at Muscle Beach. Wait a minute.
0: (laughs) Why there?
1: Oh, because she uh, would frequently play volleyball at Mm. Muscle Beach. Okay. And so she would make him go there. I think he was in... I forgot what area he was in. That's how
0: Ray Bradbury got so ripped? You've heard that story, right? You've seen the montage, right?
1: You've seen the Top Gun montage, right? But except it was Lee Brackett and (laughs) Ray Bradbury. About her at Muscle Beach... He was
0: preparing for the apocalypses he was so afraid of. She
1: was a swimming instructor there as well. And Bradbury once saw her playing volleyball with a man during World War II. She would send postcards out to Bradbury signed, Muscles. (laughs) She was the real deal. Fans of these genre magazines took an almost an instant liking to Lee Brackett's stories, but readers would often mistake her for a hymn due to the gender-neutral name. Her. The editor, Joseph Lee? Campbell, started a letter column of an issue with a bold headline, The Lee in Lee Brackett is Feminine. <laughs> and you wouldn't believe the responses. Believe it. Nobody cared because they were just such a big fan of how good she was. Yeah. Did they? Yeah, no, Good. they they really did. Some publication did that annoying thing. I don't know if it's annoying or if it's great, but they would be, they would make a point of being like, "What are you
0: doing?" My my foot is itchy and I'm really I'm wearing very big boots and I don't want to interrupt the show, so I'm clicking my heels together to scratch my foot. I just want to go home so bad. <laughs> there's no place like quarantine there's no place like quarantine
1: a lot of publications would do that annoying thing i don't know if it's annoying or great but like can you believe the writer of these incredibly imaginary visionary stories is a woman like it sucks because obviously
0: where'd she find the time between
1: menstruating and breastfeeding yeah and cleaning the kitchen but like her name is getting out there more because of this and like girls or women or boys who look up to women like me they look out there and they see a female figure doing this they're like oh i could probably do it pervert when she stops getting printed as frequently due to other job opportunities that we'll get to readers send letters to pulp magazines asking when will Lee Brackett come back, and <laughs> when was in capital letters bring back Brackett. So she was popular. People really liked Written
0: her. With uh, cutout letters from yeah. different magazines. Uh, I bring back, that, if you <laughs> don't bring her back right now. I have her. Bring her, bring her back. Bring her
1: back. At the same time, she started also writing pulp mystery and hard-boiled crime stories mm. between 1943 and 1945. She's a, she's like the uh, the bridge between all of our authors. She kind of is. Yeah, she's kind of like the John Carter. Of both these worlds, huh? She's something of a Confederate soldier on <laughs> she's, Mars.
0: She's like our—I'm uh, trying to think of another Southern general, and it's good that I can't. <laughs> keep, keep going.
1: Between forty-three and forty-five, she writes about eight short stories for small mystery publications like New Detective and Thrilling Detective. Her first full-length novel was published in 1944, and it was a crime one, No Good from a Corpse. And other than the screenplay, she's known for this is one of the two books that define her. Some people disagree. Some people strongly agree that Brackett had a thing for dialogue that many other writers at her level didn't have and in particular could write fantastically accurate dialogue for men which she learned from studying characters like old drunk William Faulkner old drunk Ernest Hemingway old drunk Dashiell Hammett and the granddaddy of all the old drunks (laughs) Raymond Chandler (laughs) her first novel is said to be cut from the Chandler mold which is both a praise and a put down but it's that book no good from a corpse that moves her into the next phase of her career Leap Racket was with the Myron Selznick agency Myron being the brother of David O. Selznick as a Hollywood producer and her agent was Hugh King of the strength of her Novel King was able to shoehorn Brackett into a job as a screenwriter for a horror film called The Vampire's Ghost at Republic Pictures. As Brackett said, they decided to cash in on the Universal Monsters school, and I had been doing science fiction, and to them, it all looked the same—bug-eyed you know, monsters. So mm-hmm. she got hired. Right. She then got another job the next year writing the screenplay for a movie called Crime Doctor's Manhunt, which is directed by William they, Castle.
0: I, I, it has to be just like a, a bucket of words here, a bucket of words there. You got science. You have fiction. three dice
1: with yep. words, and you roll it. Red, <laughs> planets glasses ghost. yeah
0: <laughs> the, the glasses from planet ghost
1: <laughs> it was directed by william castle of course and the cast <laughs> included william Frawley. really but, yeah but someone working for howard hawks was buying up little to unknown pulp novels and came across no good for a corpse which they then passed on to hawks hawks found it to be really impressive so he gets his secretary to call, call this bracket fellow <laughs> so Ho- howard hawks is on the phone <laughs> and, and
0: make make <laughs> sure he's wearing a jock strap tell him when to I'm put his him. penis
1: on the phone <laughs> so he pretty much is like tell that guy bracket to come over here and she yeah. and she shows up meet me in the men's room yeah are you bracket secretary and she's like mrs bracket i'm lee bracket the writer and he's like well okay but he's like (laughs) fine whatever i just need you to do this new project hawk sought bracket because he was adapting raymond chandler's the big sleep for the big screen Hmm. but there's a problem at the time that she was hired to write the first legitimate and big job of her life she was also neck deep in a sci-fi story with an upcoming deadline that needed to be finished for Planet Stories called *Lorelei of the Red Mist. She had written the line, then it was gone, and the immediate menace of the foreground took all of Stark's attention. Now, Howard Hawks and the big sleep stood in the way of her finishing it. She didn't quite know what to do, but then it flashed. She would turn to her friend and mentee for help. So she goes to Ray Bradbury and asks him if he could
0: finish this story for her. These are cr- Wait a minute, wait a minute. She went to Ray Bradbury to finish the big sleep?
1: No. Oh, the, the, the
0: other one. The, the, the story. She was writing *Lorelei of the Red Mist*. Okay. She has to
1: finish that. She has a deadline, so she goes to write *Bradbury*. Like. Can you finish this story? So he agreed. Bradbury added the following sentence to hers. He saw the flock herded by more of the golden hounds. He then continued and finished Lorelai of the Red Mist in 10 days. What exists is a collaborative story, a half and half between two of the biggest names in That's pulp crazy. sci-fi history. His work allowed her to move on to a bigger collaboration. On this project, not only would she be working with Howard Hawks and Humphrey Bogart and drunk Raymond Chandler, but on the writing team was the drunk William Faulkner. Uh, Wait which a minute. We
0: co- Which we covered. Uh, For the big sleep.
1: For the big sleep. This is crazy.
0: This is like the perfect storm of yeah. If you want to know writers like who don't want to be there, yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> f- with all of these junks, and then Lee Brackett. What was that like? She answered for a book of interviews called backstory to interviews with screen Artists of the 40s and 50s this is what she says i went to the studio the first day and absolutely appalled i've been writing pulp stories for about three years and here's william faulkner who was one of the great literary lights of the day and how am i going to work with him what have i got to offer as it were this was quickly resolved because i walked into the office faulkner came out of the office with the big sleep and he put it down and said i have worked out what we're gonna do we're gonna do alternate sections i will do these chapters and you will do those chapters and that was the way it had been done he went back into the his- He went back into his office and I didn't see him again. So the collaboration was quite simple. I never saw what he did and he never saw what I did. We just turned our stuff into hawks. I think everybody got very confused. It's a very confusing book if you sit down and
0: tear it apart. When you read it from page, this is still her talking. We'll get into that also with the flaws in Raymond Chandler. Yeah.
1: When you read it from page to page, I'm quoting her still. When you read it from page to page, it moves so beautifully that you don't care. But when you start tearing it apart to see what makes it tick, it becomes unglued. Owen Taylor, I believe, was the name of the chauffeur. I was down on set one day and Bogart came up to me and said, who killed Owen Taylor? And I said, I don't know. Who got hold of William Faulkner? And he said, well, I don't know. So we sent a wire to Chandler. He sent another back and said, I don't know. I In have the that is- same
0: story. Do you? <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll tell you the other side. I'll tell you what he was doing <laughs> yeah, at home. At home when he got the wire. It was like, who the hell is Owen Taylor? Is that a president? <laughs> What's a chauffeur? So there they were. The movie was a huge success. But I always felt like both Brackett and Faulkner never got enough credit for adapting it. Is this still Brackett talking? No, this is me talking. I feel like it's always like a, a weird fact like did you know William Faulkner and Lee
0: Brackett that's pretty crazy and it also like that system of like you know you do in school like you write a sentence yeah and I'll write a sentence and then you'll write a sentence like that never turns into a good story no
1: that's the way group
0: projects are done exactly
1: it was a joke for a lot of years that he
0: walked over and ripped the book in half (laughs) and said this is your part but like it wasn't far off he must have been at Muscle Beach (laughs) it used to be author beach it used to be writer beach but it was confused with ride like ride the waves write the waves and then all the authors got ripped <laughs> <laughs> the whole generation right
1: Hemingway and maybe that's just about it they never got enough credit for adapting it with an emphasis I mean that on Brackett the dialogue in the movie is snappy and not all the credit can go to Chandler and certainly to Faulkner Brackett said one day Humphrey Bogart came over to me with a manuscript and asked if I had written the cues I said no and he said they cannot be said uh, I'm not gonna do an impression of him you see William Faulkner this is her still talking you see William Faulkner wrote <laughs> this wonderful way, this
0: fraud talks a lot I
1: mean like get back in the whatever whatever right get back in the writer's room you see William Faulkner get back wrote in the wonder- president's office <laughs> William Faulkner Wrote wonderful Faulkner dialogues, but they were not written to be uttered. Faulkner went down in history as a screenwriter whose every single line was rewritten in Hollywood. <laughs> if you want to hear about Faulkner's miserable time in Hollywood, you can go back and listen to our episode, Hollywood and
0: Bust, an episode Hollywood where I managed to bust. mispronounce everything. Hollywood or bust, not Hollywood and bust. I thought it was Hollywood pervert. and bust. Why would it be Hollywood and bust? Because they went and they still busted. Hollywood or sure bust. I'm pretty sure. L- let's just shake hands on this. Come F- over. I can't <laughs> I name in the middle. I freaking dare you. So that almost sounds like uh, a dream team of. Um, are there two people looking at your car right now? <laughs> no, there. there's two oh. old people. The perspective, there's two people crouched far from your car, but yeah. the forced perspective. Right here. Look at me. Look at me. I'm the old man now. <laughs> that almost sounds like the dream team of like we could get metaphors yeah. from William Faulkner. We could get dialogue from Raymond Chandler. Yeah. We could get plot points from Lee Brackett. Yeah. And then we can get drinks from... <laughs> <laughs> we can
1: get drinks from Raymond Chandler's office. We can get girls from Howard Hawk's Catalog of Women. I like The Big Sleep. I, I probably enjoy it more than The Maltese Falcon, but The Maltese Falcon is probably a better movie. But I don't hear any I, I guess i haven't read enough faulkner other than a couple of short stories to like oh that's a faulkner line i can kind of hear some snappy stuff from bracket but i always attribute it to chandler so it's hard to tell where the yeah. lines are divide and that's why collaboration is bad yeah because you, you you don't get all the credit i want capitalism not <laughs> communism I mean this for me raymond chandler is said to have visited the studio and was very pleased with the job lee Brackett had done with his novel but a union strike put the brakes on a lot of productions that summer and lee Brackett would have to hold off and writing another screenplay for hawks for the time being because there's no more jobs sc- script writing stuff available it should also be said the same year 1946 new year's eve lee Brackett and edmund hamilton get married their best man is ray bradbury <laughs> From that point on, Edmund and Lee live half in an alley apartment. You're my Ray
0: Bradbury. What? You're my Ray Bradbury. I'm your Ray (laughs) Bradbury.
1: Edmund and Lee live half in L.A. in their apartment and half on his family's ranch in Kinsman, Ohio. They later in life left the L.A. apartment and moved to Lancaster. Mm -hmm. Um, After the big sleep and the strike, Brackett returned to her space novels. The rest of her career would be moving between screenplays and genre novels and some more short stories. Her next big story comes in 1951 with The Black Amazon of Mars, which is the most easily accessible of her books accessible meaning you can find it for free online everywhere not accessible though in like plot and the story starts off like right in the middle like someone's dying the names are like impronounceable if you're into it you're into it if you struggle with reading pulp sci-fi that's like deep sci-fi it, it can be kind of a fight mm-hmm. but
0: she writes really imaginary stuff I, I, I've never seen any of her books anywhere at all I sell a lot of them online like through overdrive and stuff but at the
1: last bookstore they have like a nice shelf of her stuff that I, I'll i buy like a couple every once
0: in a while well they'll be out of business by the time this is out so I'll never read uh,
1: it it was, certainly was the last bookstore <laughs> got it oh got us um got the economy yeah she keeps writing novels shadow over mars the starman alpha centauri or die <laughs> and possibly her best known novels are the long tomorrow and the sword of Rinnanon. her novel the big jump i read maybe six months ago and i loved it it's like pulp macho stuff with <laughs> space she writes dialogue so tough and so snappy as snappy as hammond and chandler and the end doesn't land well but if you read chandler you're already accustomed to that so it's yeah, just that space an like the big jump <laughs> i space. really enjoyed there's something about the big jump where a guy is going to go to okay so the big jump basically is about this spacecraft got farther than any spacecraft Could it it made this jump like light speed? It It made made this jump, jump. and this guy went, and spacecraft came back without anybody on it. And a friend—it's a relationship that's really weird because they're kind of friends, but they're kind of (laughs) not. but he wants to go rescue the guy anyways. like be almost on principle. Like he saved my life and I have to do the same for
0: him. Like it's it, like the relationships are really good. Anyways, the big yeah, job involved in ne- that. This, this book will never be on shelves again. So uh,
1: I, I lend my <coughs> coffee to every uh, copy to oh, everybody
0: that I see what you, that's good.
1: I'm, I'm clever. Huh? <laughs> her best known reoccurring character, a character that's synonymous with her. If you're a deep cut sci-fi reader is Eric John Stark, who is Tarzan meets Conan, but on Mars. Stark is an earth man raised by native Mercurius, If you're from Mercury, you're a Mercurian. After his real Earth parents parents die, and when a cave collapses, the tribe that raises him gets destroyed by a group of human miners who imprison him, and he is rescued and raised by a police officer. His upbringing and experiences make him aware of the injustices that native planetary species deal with, and he helps to fight against colonization and
0: genocide. That's. Much deeper than uh, hey, at least she's fighting genocide. Yeah,
1: she's not John <laughs> Carter because he spent so much time on his Mars. He doesn't really I went to a talk at uh, LAPL about nine years ago, 2000 I think it was 2012. Ripe of like maybe like a few months before I moved to Chico, and it was a guy I cannot find any programming about it, but he like gave a whole talk, a whole lecture on pulp sci-fi so he introduced me to henry cutner and lee Brackett. i got a better idea of lee bracket but here's the thing he went into each story and gave what was really interesting about it and the interesting thing about eric john stark is that isn't because that he spent game so much thrones time name? on
0: mars what isn't that a game of Th- <laughs> I think that's the fifth what yeah. isn't that a game of thrones name john stark yeah you gotta sue george R who's already being sued by jr rr who's already being sued by R burrows who's being sued by a broken train he's still being hunted down by the sheep people people
1: <laughs> because eric john stark spends so much time on mars his skin is a dark deep black as black as his hair to this i say hell yeah <laughs> a lot of like ice castles and like his wait a minute
0: but there's only white people from the south on mars oh not
1: mars Oh, mercury no eric john stars of eric john stark of mars or john carter of mars i'm getting them all confused They're all the same this is why
0: people don't respect both <laughs> of them stuff is because they all turn into the same thing she continues through the 50s which and 60s what which is Nothing. Thank
1: you. This is a good. Li- I can hear you. I'm just. T- I'm trying to make a point to shut up. <laughs> she continues what? through all the fifties and sixties writing tales about Eric John Stark and Mars and the scathe. She eventually was called back by Howard Hawks, who had her under a contract for two more scripts. But that wasn't the only reason he called her though. Hawks admired her. Oh no. He said that they shared the same literary tastes. She was sophisticated. She dressed in somewhat outdoorsy manner, which he liked, and more importantly, her understanding of comradeship, both in fiction and in life, and her ability to create tough talking dames. That's every everything that Hawks loved. So he just loved having her around. He respected her work, which was like the most important thing. In 1957, but. there's no but other than he would pay her less then he would min. In 1957, she started to write Rio Bravo with Jules Firth. That's the John Wayne, yeah. Ricky Nelson, Dean Martin Western. His liking for Brackett did not translate well into the banks, like I said. Jules Firth was paid 2500 a week and he hated to put anything down on paper and Brackett, who busted her ass writing, he got paid $600 a week. She also worked on Hatari and went criminally underpaid for that too. She also wrote the original screen for, for El Dorado and said it was one of the best things she had ever written but Hawks changed key points in it. She did uncredited and writing and rewriting for the rock hudson movie man's favorite sport which i watched
0: 20 minutes of i can tell you man's favorite sport for rock hudson it's uh, man <laughs> the <laughs> most dangerous sport yeah and man. my favorite sport um,
1: i watched 20 minutes of it and i've been dying to rewatch it but i can't find it anywhere she also wrote rio lobo the gold of the seven saints and a few other movies through the 60s and 70s but let's get to her last couple big things 1973 Philip Marlowe has one more case for her when Robert Altman asked her to create a screenplay for The Long Goodbye starring Elliot Gould. Adapting this one would prove to be difficult because it was easily Chandler's longest and most convoluted novel so dissecting it and reconstructing it for the screen was challenging even though fans appreciated it. Chandler fans hated it even though it is through and through a 70s movie. It's pretty uh, and it's A
0: lot of chest hair.
1: Oh my god so much chest hair
0: and is there nudity in it? Probably. I mean it's the 70s. It was nudity and they didn't even think twice about it. Yeah there's just like a naked woman and a kid walks by in the scene and they're like, that's good for him. Yeah. Oh, we're setting the mood. Yeah. Turtleneck City. A sale on Turtleneck tur- City, but just the neck and then chest hair.
1: <laughs> 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 that's how you know he's a bad guy. The next thing comes and to me, it's it.
0: Talk about chest hair.
1: The granddaddy. Although I'm sure no one really knew it it was shortly after this little movie called out called star wars (laughs) which uh, another after all these stupid titles like yep, that's 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 another yeah to his credit he was trying to recreate that so Brackett's a perfect fit for that george lucas wanted to put the second movie into production shortly after he had changed the world with the first one so who should he go to but the queen of space operas the madame of the starry-eyed pulps lee Brackett. lucas paid her a flat fee of fifty thousand dollars to put forth a draft of the sequel for a new hope the two brainstorm ideas and she worked up a draft and its draft is a majority of what we see in Empire Strikes Back. Her screenplay isn't word for word what was used in the movie, but the motions of the most of things are thanks to Bracket. The reveal of Darth Vader being Luke's dad was not in the original script she wrote. In her draft Vader is a fallen Jedi out to kill Luke based just solely on vengeance. Hmm. His dad's ghost is revealed to him on Dagobah while he's training with a slightly different yoga. Luke has a yoga. twin sister, but it isn't Leia. And we get more of Lando's story that he's a surviving clone trooper. Huh. These are all Lee really? Brackett's. That's
0: weird to include a clone thing
1: uh, yeah. that early on because she knew the oh, well, idea yeah, of the, the Clone War sounded yeah. pretty cool. Uh, cool
0: un- enough for Lando Calrissian.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, shortly after turning her screenplay in, Lee Brackett died of cancer. Hmm. A truly tragic loss. Lucas also confessed a. Not liking her draft and sat with uh, Lawrence. He said that at her funeral. This is my eulogy. He sat with Lawrence Kasdan and the director. They made like two new drafts based on hers. Her original screenplay exists online, and Lucas dedicated the film to her and managed to get the Writers Guild to recognize it and give her credit by submitting her draft to them and not his own. Hmm. But listen, George Lucas not liking your take on Star Wars is a good thing. <laughs> I've read snippets online of dialogue between Han and Leia when they're trying to outrun the Empire, and it's something really special. I really like the way they talk to each other in her draft. Her absolute love of the Genre and her ability to write outlandishly fantastical worlds and plots but keep real dialogue makes her something truly magical that same year 1978 her name was immortalized in another up-and-coming a renegade director's work he was making a movie in la about a killer on the loose and the sheriff of the small town is named lee brackett the director is john carpenter and the movie is halloween the
0: movie that started the slasher genre huh. long live lee brackett interesting john carpenter kind of sounds like john carter is john carpenter a confederate soldier as well Pick up your microphone have you seen and, his mustache? and reballed me.
1: Have you seen his mustache? <laughs> That's <laughs> a Confederate
0: mustache. We should do a uh, a live reading of Lee Brackett's Empire Strike. Hey, Strike. We, we have time now. We have time. And the court systems are out, so they can't <laughs> sue us for that. Who's next? Who, who next that my people have influenced?
1: I know that I mentioned this guy named Ray Bradbury, and you don't really want to hear his story. But guess what, stupid? It's coming. Our next segment is called The Adopted Son of the City. Here's something I didn't know. Ray Bradbury wasn't born in L.A. I thought he was. He's so well regarded as, like, he's one of the greatest authors of Los Angeles. I'm going
0: to say he's from Wisconsin.
1: Ray Bradbury was born on the distant planet of Waukegan, which is in the state of Illinois, an industrial suburb north of Chicago, hometown
0: Uh, of... Edgar Rice Burroughs.
1: Jack Benny, patron saint of Touching Your Own Face. Ray (laughs) Bradbury
0: comes from one of those humor has not aged well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ray Bradbury comes from one of those white families where it can be traced hundreds of years. His lineage goes back to 1630 in Salisbury, Massachusetts. A real
0: real, uh, John Carter family.
1: (laughs) When they settled after escaping from jolly old england not so jolly old england after they left ray was born in august of 1920 he came from a humble working class background one online biography said his father worked as a lineman for phone and power utilities and his mother was an immigrant from sweden that's not a job <laughs> uh his mother esther had been raised in the states since she was three years old so kind of
0: isn't the same thing as your occupation
1: being an immigrant mm-hmm. but whatever yeah
0: what you say you think it's easy being an immigrant <laughs> is that what you're saying it's a lot of hard work we got it, right audience
1: Am I right? Audience full of the immigrants? Have they're, pulled?
0: they're all applauding in the <laughs> way that they, they do in their country, <laughs>
1: which is silently. His maternal side of the family worked in iron and steel. His paternal worked in printing and attempted to get rich in gold and silver mining and lost it all. He grew up knowing his family history was rich with follies and quiet successes. Ray was one of four not siblings. With, not rich in money. Rich in stories. Um, <laughs> it's different. Ray was one of four siblings, a pair of twins, an older sister, and himself. But by 1927, two of his siblings died. One of the twins, Samuel, died during the flood epidemic of 1918 oh when he was two years old. And later, his sister Betty Jane died of pneumonia when Ray was seven.
0: Get out of Chicago.
1: These deaths, along with the whimsy of his childhood, would shape the life and storytelling for the rest of his life. Because that's his story. It's like kind of painful, but kind of whimsical. <laughs> it's like dark yeah. whimsy. Yeah, that's Wistful.
0: Wistful. Thank wistful, you. Wistful, but for fun kids.
1: <laughs> like He has stories growing up where him and his brother, like somebody had in town told him the world was going to end on this day. So him and his brother packed like a lunch and went out to a rock and went waited for the world to end when he was like a teenager i think 15 he watched a car hit a pole he watched and like four people died and he he saw that like it's that stuff that's really dark but also there's like yeah that's
0: how you get a ray bradbury that's how
1: you get a ray bradbury Mm -hmm.
0: but he also saw a really cute dog exactly
1: he also ate a really good ice cream one day and he had to immortalize
0: (laughs) that that soda jerk
1: but now let's get into the whimsy by all accounts he seemed to have an idyllic childhood in a small town north of a big city as an adult he claimed to have an almost perfect recall of his childhood even his birth says What? uh, He says he remembered everything. Also, a weird thing that I wrote down that reminded me of you. Uh, His mother said he had a weird eating habit. Would only eat, for a long time, would only eat milk, hamburgers, and tomato soup. Come on.
0: That was never me. (laughs) Did he keep anything in his pockets?
1: (laughs) How much soup did he keep in his pocket?
0: That's way more than I would ever. (laughs) Did he invent the lining that I now use (laughs) to keep soup in my pocket? It's it's (laughs) heated, but it won't burn my legs.
1: (laughs) At eight years old, everything changes when a lodger at his grandma's boarding house brought the first copy of Amazing Stories when he was eight years old. Years old. That same year, Buck Rogers' comic strips start and he starts collecting them. A couple years later, Tarzan comics start getting printed in color. Around that time, he began reading fervently with things like The Wonderful World of Oz and Grimm's Fairy Tales* sticking mm. out to him. Two huge influences in his early years was his grandmother who would watch movies with him every week with a particular emphasis on Lon Chaney and the husband of our eternal mayor, Mary Pickford. They watched a lot of Douglas Fairbanks <laughs> movies together. He recalls being three and five respectively when he saw The Phantom of the Opera and The Hunchback of Notre Dame in the theaters with his grandmother. Mm. The other influences was his Aunt Nevada or Neva who was a costume designer and a dressmaker. Maker who would take Ray to the plays and always encourage him to use his imagination? But what do you, what to do with this imagination <laughs> business? Imagine there's no <laughs> money in that. Luckily, something monetary this way comes in 1932 at the age of 12 (laughs) ray bradbury goes to a carnival and watches a show from a magician called mr electrico at the show mr electrico was covered in static electricity and he found bradbury in the crowd and he approached i heard that he approached him also heard that he was sitting down in an electric chair (laughs) Um, but as part of the show he touched ray's nose
0: and said oh no don't do that these days
1: it was a a lower nose no uh, (laughs) he touches ray bradbury's nose and says Live forever. And Bradbury said, <laughs> and I decided I would. <laughs> and he always has. My life came together then with Mr. Electrico telling me to live forever. I want to give you the same spark Mr. Electrical gave to me. He would tell a Cerritos high school crowd, <laughs>
0: and that's a binding contract.
1: <laughs> this instance charged Ray Bradbury's imagination. He came back the next day and asked Mr. Electrical for advice on a magic trick because, of course, Ray Bradbury was also into
0: magic. Because how else can he be like Daniel? Hey, come on! I'm not from the Midwest. <laughs> that's a, I've got a hard edge.
1: <laughs> There's uh, something about me that I've, is my, rugged. My whimsy and is urban. rugged.
0: I've got urban whimsy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> urban whimsy, which is just like smog inhalation and he found Mr. Electrical and they talked and Mr. Electrical took him to other carnival performers and Mr. Electrical told Ray that he was a reincarnation of his best friend who died in World War One, the mustard gas trench war that that one. Bradbury said after that, a few days later, I began to write full time. I've written every <laughs> single day of my life since that day. What how old was he? Twelve?
0: Really? Yeah. Wow, yeah, your people definitely got started young. Yeah, for sure. We're like, and I they, read a Tarzan <laughs> I'm going to do this forever. And wait a minute, they liked
1: writing? <laughs> they liked whatever they, drug they were addicted to? So they got They writing?
0: liked the money <laughs> of writing, you mean. How
1: lucrative it was. Two years later, 1934, the Bradbury family moves. First to Arizona for a bit and then per- more permanently to Los Angeles. I, again, cannot for the life of me figure out where they moved first. It wasn't the famous ha- house in Cheviot Hills, but at some point they moved a couple times. I can't figure out He was now 14... In Los Angeles, home of Hollywood, California, where a different kind of magic happened. Cocaine magic. No. Oh, no. <laughs> Bradbury attended oh, Berendo yeah. Junior High School in the outskirts of downtown near Olympic. Berendo has such alumnus as maybe Van Doren, Jimmy Doolittle, and Edgar Bergen, a famous ventriloquist. So now he's at school. He's living in Los Angeles. He bums around libraries in town. He's got a job selling newspapers, which is the, the Los Angeles Daily News, to be exact, at the corner of Olympic and Norton, again, to be exact. And around this time, he starts attending plays because that's what he would do back home with Aunt Neva. He's a frequent at the Figueroa Street Playhouse, which is now the Variety Arts theater in downtown and while he's frequently the figueroa street playhouse he lands his first job do you know what his first job was
0: working in the library his 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 first writing job wait a minute if he's a copy of me was it working at linens and things (laughs) (laughs) hiding in linens and things and collecting a paycheck for doing no work i shelved some things i shelved some
1: towels another very daniel thing his first writing job was writing a joke for george burns for the gracie and allen show really yeah wow how did he get that we'll get to that here's the bit gracie goes And George was like, quick, somebody, Gracie has fainted, hurry, bring a glass of water, Gracie, can't you say something? And Gracie says, Sure, this is the Columbia Broadcasting System. And then the music plays,
0: which is better than any intro we've ever written. But hang on. What was Act 2 like?
1: <laughs> Did she eat a funny thing?
0: The theme song started playing, but then it got interrupted. Yeah, it gets and, interrupted <laughs> and again. And then what mythical creature then <laughs> came and interrupted A uh, Griffin that? comes. He had gotten to know George and Gracie and had started
1: giving amateur scripts to them every Wednesday for consideration because they would also frequent the same playhouse. So he'd run into them because I guess they were broadcasting the radio show from there. So he would
0: just run into them. This is, you know, we we joked about like, like, why would Lee Brackett run into Edgar Rice Burroughs? Well, Raymond, R- Raymond, Raymond Bradbury. Yeah, Raymond Bradbury <laughs> would run into Gra- George, George Burns, Burns and Gracie Allen yeah. just going to the
1: theater. So, yeah, he'd gotten to know them. He'd start giving them amateur scripts to them every Wednesday for consideration. Somehow, this was the winner. After Brendo he attended Los Angeles High School, which is on Olympic and Mid-City. There you could find Ray and, of course, The Drama Club, where he hoped to one day be an actor. He was also writing, still writing every day and reading every day anything he can get his mitts on at this point collecting all the prince valiant comics he also had a real admiration for thomas wolf and began to write poetry mm-hmm. he had two dedicated teachers who were his only instruction in as far as far as writing he saved up his lunch money to buy a typewriter he wrote bylines for the school paper on live performances by jack benny and fred allen this was his life in high school not only just like a dedicated writer
0: but a dedicated comedy fan
1: yeah i, always, I think about that a lot he's kind of funny mm-hmm. like not like hard hitting I mean. funny
0: but he's i mean yeah it's funny when a kid licks an ice cream cone and it falls on the floor yeah, which I- is the recurring joke, <laughs> so sentimental, very sentimental, yeah. very amber tinted, exactly, yeah. <laughs>
1: it was the greatest summer ever, and then like a lady dies, and that's why it was the greatest. <laughs> <summer>. <laughs> I got away with it. In 1936, <laughs> the next cosmic phase begins for Ray Bradbury when he's at a secondhand bookstore in Hollywood and sees a handbill promoting a meeting for the L.A.S.F.S., the Los Angeles Science <laughs> Fantasy Society. <laughs> Once again, we talk about them a little bit, little bit more when we talk about For Zuckerman and monsters and the nerds who love. Of them, Uncle foray nerd zero, and weirdly enough, the grandson of the architect behind the Bradbury Building, no relation, had <laughs> created a group of science fiction enthusiasts who would meet on the second floor of Clifton's cafeteria. Clifton's cafeteria. Clifton's
0: cafeteria. Ah, That's oh, that funny, like
1: Ray Raymond. Raymond. I keep calling him Raymond Bradbury. Raymond Burr. Bradbury. He joined the group which met every Thursday and would join the ranks of such beautiful nerds as again uh, Cutner, Highland, Bracket, and outrun hubbard the oh, members yeah. really took I a liking to that. bradbury and encouraged him to keep writing which of course he did so he graduates high school in 1938 and he keeps writing he does not pursue college he is luckily not sent to him the military at the dawn of world war ii because his eyesight is atrocious it has been since he yeah,
0: was this like guy is me 13 so he stays wow, home yeah. and he did he, stay- he get a concussion playing hockey and then he realized he had to get glasses oh, it's like <sighs> now what's this playing card read hang on, on. i see uh, uh johnny carson reference
1: oh!
0: <laughs> you're attracting this dog's attention it's gonna Give us coronavirus. That one? Yeah. It keeps cute. looking at it. It is cute. Of course it's cute. It has coronavirus. It's dumb, yeah. So,
1: luckily, because his eyesight is so bad, he gets to stay home and get free limeade from Clifford Clinton as he continues to write every day and spend hours in libraries reading everything he can get his hands on. Anything he can get his hands on. He, he's like Quinn Tarantino with movies is Ray mm-hmm. Bradbury with novels mm-hmm. and poems and short stories
0: that turned him into two very opposite people yeah for sure both for like milkshakes though
1: nah, both hunch a lot and feet with the encouragement of his sci-fi friends he started aiming all his writing towards pulp magazines
0: and club fanzines pulp fiction there's the connection
1: if only we didn't already use that title for another episode this one can be called kill uh never mind
0: <laughs> about the hateful mm,
1: hollywood Nah, <laughs> <laughs> got it his first short story that got published was hollerbocken's dilemma which is in the league's fanzine that was 1938 same year he got out of high school the following year he created his own fanzine future of fantasia also that year our guy bradbury attends the first world science fiction convention in new york city he mingles he whines he dines. On a dime, of course. But more importantly, he networked with sci-fi editors, and from this lands his first sale to a professional science fiction magazine, Super Science Stories, which two years later would publish his story, Pendulum. And yes, he did get paid for the story. No, no, Mr. Clinton. Today I'll be buying my own limeade <laughs> and can i also get
0: some turkey stuffing
1: with gravy? <laughs> please <laughs> from super science stories he moved on to getting his short stories published in pulp magazines uh like weird tales what was beginning to emerge from his style was a superb use of metaphors and similes and the concentration Ooh. on characters existing in science fiction and fantasy I'm worlds. i'm
0: telling you all these people that we're talking about are the same person yeah basically <laughs> it just changed
1: names that's the thing about ray bradbury that separates him from all the other pulp writers is that it was less about technology and the mechanics well, of like science fiction and more about like people in the situations.
0: that's exactly that's why I'm not the biggest fan of most of Ray Bradbury's stuff is because there's because you, know, you like the technology I aspects. love the techno I love the technology and like the I don't know there's his is almost more I'm thinking of something wicked this way comes which is yeah. not science fiction at no. all and it's barely horror yeah but like that's why I'm kind of not as into most of his stuff right. because like Arthur C. Clarke is all technology he's like a science and he's evolution. like a scientist with a typewriter pretty much and, yeah. and Arthur C or er, uh, uh, Ray- Raymond Bradbury Raymond Brad- Br- is Bradbury. just a heart that f- grew arms <laughs> <laughs> is
1: Clark your guy yeah, absolutely yeah. 100%. But
0: no question. What is uh what, I mean Martian
1: Chronicles? Martian
0: or? Chronicles. Yeah. I really like the Martian yeah. Chronicles and I'm I halfway remember through it liking, right now it's really good. I remember liking Fahrenheit 451, but maybe there's too much heart in it for I, me. I never tried Fahrenheit 451
1: cuz I always knew that was a band book and I knew why what it was about, so I never tried it. <laughs> I,
0: <laughs> I couldn't read. I could books I could oh child. I wouldn't read the Bible or Harry no, Potter. but
1: I in high school read as much short stories from him as I could cuz somebody turned me on to the illustrated Band, which I didn't like that short story but like the vault yeah. was in there I think
0: and it's really good. Yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of the illustrator. I also watched his uh, Ray Bradbury Presents, which is so... Oh, s- uh, they're fun. <laughs> they're fun, but boy are they sentimental. You
1: said amber-coated, very amber-coated. Yeah. So he's writing a different kind of sci-fi than everybody else because sci-fi changed big time when the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Had science gone too far? Who was the good guys? I thought we were the good guys. We'd be fascism, but now we're burning shadows of people into walls. Are there good guys? Has science made us stray away from God or whatever I believe in? What do we believe in now that we're the story of worlds? Twilight Zone was born in this era. And with that, I think sci-fi started telling really human stories about people making challenging decisions and science used for evil or ambivalent purposes.
0: Okay, let me defend myself a little bit by saying I don't like the heart of Ray Bradbury because the Twilight Zone, that has a lot of heart in it also. I don't know. The thing with Ray Bradbury is what I've read a lot just seems very sentimental and nostalgic and it doesn't do that much for me.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of them that I started. I'm like, I just can't make through. Like, it's just goosebumps, which yeah. is fine.
0: Be, be goosebumps, but I'm not in mood for goosebumps because I also thought like everything he wrote was science fiction or yeah, fantasy. yeah, yeah, oh yeah. So, yeah and then same. I picked up Dandelion Wine. Oh yeah. And I'm like, oh, what? A... What do the are they aliens? All over again. This is the Day of the Locust, where I'm going <laughs> in like here comes the lo-. like what yeah. did the da- did the aliens bring dandelion wine? Yeah, and, and you it cures drink it, cancer? and
1: is it's actually human blood? Yeah. Is this soylent wine? No, I think it's the short just Story. Some
0: story about growing up in the country
1: yeah it's basically his childhood which is like it's a lot of bikes yeah. um, i was a big fan of, he has a short story called the "I think body electric is a the one that ends up being a twilight zone episode mm-hmm. and it's kind of it's the same thing it's kind of it's fun yeah it's not my favorite inspired chicken motel i think that's the name of it <laughs> it's sentimental but like with a little tongue in cheek i guess mm-hmm. my favorite short stories from his they're basically twilight zone episodes that never became twilight yeah. zone episodes and they should have been because they're both really good yeah i uh, stick with the martian chronicles brad baby falls into <laughs> this group and yeah with over 600 short stories published some are trash just like plenty of twilight zone are
0: trash but the hey, good hey, ones hey, are whoa, great whoa. i'm sure we said that earlier but yeah. hey hey whoa whoa now we're comparing stuff <laughs> hey hey whoa whoa edgar rice Burroughs wrote over 100 things and like four are good but <laughs> hey hey whoa whoa hey
1: hey whoa whoa <laughs> this, this coronavirus <laughs> has got to go hey hey whoa whoa you people in the park have got to go. But 1945, Hiroshima, Twilight Zone, we're not there yet. 1940. His life was writing feverishly, reading obsessively at the library, chatting it up about the news at the newsstand, taking acting lessons from Lorraine Day at the Wilshire Players Guild, and repeatedly watching Fantasia. The movie Fantasia. The movie Fantasia. Oh
0: my, are you kidding me? You watch is, that re- repeatedly. I watched that movie probably every single day for like three years of my life. Oh, really? Yeah. You were Ray Bradbury. I, it's weird. I don't like Ray Bradbury that much. but I'm sure he didn't they, like oh, Ray Bradbury also, much either. I also don't like myself. No. <laughs> he uh.
1: was living at Figueroa and Temple. I can't, again, can't find that's out where, where. I used to... <laughs> uh, that, that's my childhood place. And then Sundays he would spend with Lee Brackett at Muscle Beach comparing stories. Just like us? I- so this was his life in 1940 1940- and it was a good life but his writing would continue to improve and with that his adventure would become way more interesting. 1943 is when he establishes himself as a full-time writer getting published in several genre magazines. In 1947 he gets a rejection notice from Weird Tales and out of frustration sends a story titled Homecoming to Mademoiselle. It ends up in a discard pile but but one young editorial assistant saved the story and helped get it published in the magazine. That young assistant? Truman
0: Capote. <laughs> what is this Forrest Gump of a life? I
1: I'd say, I was thinking the I, same I, thing. I
0: feel like where there's so many different puzzle pieces. We're yeah. putting, maybe I just have puzzles on the mind because that's yeah. what I've been doing for the last three days. But
1: this is so LA because you're feverishly working in your hustle. You're meeting other people who are eventually going to do the same. Like you're yeah. just like, it's not networking because you're working hard. You're just meeting people but eventually later it becomes so networking. Weird.
0: Truman Capote. Truman
1: Capote runs into a group run by four Ackerman. <laughs> also in the group, a woman who would write Empire Strikes
0: Back, and the and guy who started Scientology. A form of religion that would ruin <laughs> lives.
1: He writes Homecoming and it ends up winning the O. Henry Prize in 1947. Ooh. When it was published, it had illustrations drawn by his pal, Charles Adams The creator of the (laughs) Adams family One strip comics Along with many other humorous (laughs) And kind of racist illustrations Side note The woman who was partly responsible For the look and feel of Morticia Was Charles' first wife Barbara Jean Adams Left him and married the guy Who wrote Hiroshima Oh yeah It's all connected 1947 was also the year That Bradbury got married To Marguerite McClure Who he met the year before At a bookstore They met after she thought He was shoplifting Which fits the bill If you know what I mean She Mm -hmm. said Once I figured out He wasn't stealing books That was it I fell for him <laughs> His best man, Ray Harryhausen. Oh
0: my God. Right? This is ridiculous. What a life. Yeah.
1: Okay. Same here. 1947. All this stuff is happening. His short story gets published into a collection called Dark Carnival. Kind of hard to find now. A lot of it ended up in October country, which I am a little more familiar with. He has a book on writing that I have that I like a lot. And he mentions he wrote one short story and he cried. <laughs> and that's when he knew he was a great writer. I'm like, get out of here. And I rolled my eyes. They- and I'm i read it you. and it's one of the best things ever written it's called the lake it's really good
0: yeah. if you ever stumble across a ray rider short story the lake i highly suggest it this is exactly what i'm talking about not liking it, i want a guy who wants a paycheck and has a <laughs> pregnant
1: wife i want raymond chandler who had to be bullied into everything he ever <laughs> wrote yeah it's really good it's painful but not sadistic it packs a punch it has a wallop of an ending but not a twist it's his own version of nothing in the dark that's why it's an episode it's my suggested reading of this whole thing is the Velt
0: and the lake. Okay, that, you see, it's because at the on the Ray Bradbury Theater or whatever that yeah. show was called, the intro was that he'd lead you. He's like, "Welcome to my oh, house, boy. and look at these things. I can't believe." And one thing that always stuck out is "Go, well, there might be a knife or an African veldt." <laughs> <laughs> That's what he'd say at the beginning of every episode. He's such a dork. he sounds like a lazy Hitchcock get up walk (laughs) if such a thing is possible
1: (laughs) so the next book pretty much makes bradbury bradbury it's another collection of intertwined short stories and it's called as we already discussed the martian chronicles which Uh was published in 1950 this really sets him apart from his period what's um, remarkable about it it's not a space epic it takes place on mars it's not an adventure. And it's like different time periods. Yeah, exactly. Of like colonization of Mars, yeah. right? Mars is almost inconsequential to the story. It's space and technology and distant lands are a background to a really gripping stories about like loss and internal struggles. When I said some of Brackett's stories could be inaccessible, it was in regards to how human Bradbury's short sci-fi stories are. He follows the Martian Chronicles with another Bradbury staple, a collection of short stories that is the Illustrated Man, which I was forced to read in high school and I was very...
0: I was really disappointed by the Illustrated Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I
1: shouldn't have told that teacher I like tattoos, and then he made me read that. <laughs> I like the vault though, but whatever. Um, the vault, the vault. His good streak <laughs> continues with maybe his most loved classic. Fahrenheit 451, which mm. he wrote on a rental Royal KMM typewriter in the
0: basement of the Powell Library at the UCLA. I thought he wrote in the LAPL library. He might have switched
1: hit, yeah. <laughs> but I know he
0: wrote. He wrote some stuff. Everyone claims like he wrote it
1: in the <laughs> VILT. I know he he was like a problem in his life was coin operated typewriters.
0: That was like a huge issue with him. That sounds. I wouldn't write. <laughs> like, if, if I had to put a coin in every five minutes to write, I know. I wouldn't write.
1: Writing this story is going to cost me $9.80. Uh, Forget it. The Velt, the Welt. <laughs>
0: But I got to put on the Velt. Seinfeld. Uh, this <laughs> book, Fahrenheit 451. I think I have Corona. I, I, <laughs> I've been slowly going crazy in my apartment. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's manifesting in being rusty and also stupid. Welcome to 2020. <laughs> rusty, stupid. Okay. That's my new sci fi character. <laughs> He's a Confederate soldier, make no mistake. <laughs> Rusty
1: stupid The book is of course A landmark A true American classic It deals with a dystopian future Where books are banned And the man whose job it is To burn the books Take a step back And ends up falling for And protecting literature On paper it sounds kind of lame But I'm sure it's amazing
0: I remember reading it And really liking it Yeah But I wonder if I'd still like it Going uh, back to yeah, it Yeah I don't know
1: I don't know why People always lump that And um 1984 What? 1984
0: 1984 And there's a third
1: one But the third one doesn't deserve To be ranked together And it's Catch-22 Oh, yeah, I never read that. Yeah. Not enough velts. Uh, I haven't read the first 21. Anywho I'll be lost so uh, It won't yeah. make sense how to me I, Like it I doesn't know? for anybody The book basically Came from a lot of Different ideas That he already put forth In like short stories Short stories Turned into a novella And then it ended up Becoming Fahrenheit 451 Which of course I already said Was on the banned book list Which of course Makes it more yeah. First of all Funny because The book about censorship And then also Every couple of years Like oh we have to Read that banned book just, yeah. It's not smut It's just Make no mistake It's not smutty Like that Harry Potter <laughs>
0: It's not smutty Like where the wild things are <laughs> Smut So it's
1: 1955 Five, you're no. in Hollywood it's about time you get in the pictures right Bradbury had already done some Hollywood work right? he wrote a treatment for uh, It Came From Outer Space 1953 but after some meetings with John really? Huston over the years about adapting his books he was once again approached by Huston to adapt a film version of
0: Herbert Melville's Moby Dick you know this? The Gregory Peck one? Yeah. Okay. That he that Ray Bradbury wrote the screenplay right. for. I can't, it, can't think of it. anything less interesting than <laughs> Ray Bradbury's take on Moby Dick.
1: Two things: Brad baby would have to travel to Ireland to write it along with Houston, so he'd have to leave his home yeah. in Hollywood and go to Ireland to write this thing with from an intense man to write it with another intense man. <laughs> and two, although he had a copy of the book, he was never able to trudge through like Moby chowder, Dick. Don't you? I got four hours about chowder Here's the history of this particular port. He said he had so much trouble. Trying to read it from the beginning. So, what he did was, he did what I do. He opened a book to a random page in the middle and just went from there. And he yeah. ended up loving it because it turns out Bradbury has a real soft spot for Shakespeare. Of course he does. But so did Herman Melville. And apparently, Herman Melville wrote it. And after writing Moby Dick, finally was able to read Shakespeare. I forget. He, there's a reason why he never read Shakespeare, but is he finally like, found a copy of Shakespeare. Like
0: he's immune to Shakespeare now because he got an inactive strand of Shakespeare. Yeah, from Moby and now Dick. he actually caught it. Herman
1: Melville reads Shakespeare and then rewrites Moby Dick now with Ahab or like more Ahab. Or now with more Ahab. <laughs> so like Bradbury is reading Moby Dick. He's like, you like Shakespeare like I like Shakespeare and then suddenly understood a Moby Dick but the task of that should be banned uh, the chapter about Chowder for sure should be banned this was gonna be hard for even John Huston according to Bradbury had either never read it or didn't understand it so like now it was up to mostly Bradbury Mm -hmm. to decipher this thing Moby Dick for the big screen. It's not going to be a <laughs> miniseries. It's not going to be like on Netflix, yeah. each episode is 2. It's not going to be Ken Burns's Moby Dick. <laughs> this is going to be a 2-hour thing with Gregory Peck. It's got to be like that didn't matter. He took the job anyway. And it was he said it was writing this was grueling. 12-hour days, 6 or 7 days a week for 8 months in Ireland and England. It was hard brain work trying to break down and rearrange Moby Dick. How do you even begin to make that ready for the big screen? It sounded like he cracked. One morning he went in front of a mirror and was like i am herman Melville, <laughs> and sat down and in eight hours of passionate red hot writing uh, he discovered he finished the screenplay threw
0: it on houston's lap and said there it is i'm done there it is take it i imagine this is like uh you didn't see the lighthouse but no, i imagine I this is like the lighthouse it's a little bit like tropic thunder too which uh, is your moby dick which is my moby dick and
1: houston's like my god what happened
0: and bradbury
1: replied behold Herman Malville. Oh, so yeah, God. working on a movie with John Huston didn't break him, but it should have. He, he was dying to it. come back, though, and he wanted to rejoin his family. He had four daughters, but at this point in his life, I think he had three three daughters at this point. So he works in TV, too, writing an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The episode is Shopping for Death. He writes like a couple more for a series, two more for Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He adapts one short story for The Twilight Zone, I Sing the Body Electric. It was one of several that got rejected. He's known more for getting rejected by Twilight Zone than getting accepted yeah, isn't by that
0: Twilight Zone. is funny that Rodson serling was so particular of like mm, a top sci-fi writer in the country yeah nah. Nah. how about this kid who was abused by his mom <laughs> charles beaumont yeah get
1: him for a bunch of them I was, i've been re-watching now that we're living in a twilight zone episode i've been re them
0: they have a sentimental streak but every once in a while they do a mean thing to somebody and it's good it's always me i mean yeah it's it's always you know twisted twisted irony man yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> next up
1: book wise was dandelion wine in 1957 which is a semi-autobiographical look at this beautiful childhood in <laughs> illinois it's nostalgic and sentimental with elements of fantasy and wonder after that came a medicine where's for melancholy?
0: the fantasy I, what this wine wasn't fermented enough but it's still good <laughs> that's in wine
1: tales amazing wine tales after a medicine for melancholy there's something wicked this way comes followed later by the halloween tree all of these are like standard classic radbury names that his name is synonymous with yeah 19-
0: you know that look that like it, his tv show had it but like the look that almost like a lifetime movies. yeah like children's movies for tv from the 80s yeah, like, yeah that's yeah. that sort of filter is what all of his books give off to me
1: for sure yeah nostalgic and sentimental it's fuzzy a little glocky. a little bit fuzzy like <laughs> professional mullet so it's just like a perm but it's like a little bit deeper on one end than the other twisted perms in 1964 that's my magazine In 1964, he received his favorite of the many awards he'd win throughout his life when he was named the Ideas Consultant for the United States Pavilion at the 1964 World's Fair. He said, can you believe it? He would also go on to write the basic scenario for the interior spaceship at Epcot Disney World, and he also worked on the city engineering and rapid transit, a thing he was familiar with because he did not know how to drive. Ray Bradbury pulled off the greatest science fiction trick of all time. He lived in LA since a teenager and did not cooperate
0: with the you gotta get a car rule. I wonder what all of his friends thought about that. Didn't have a car. Always broke going to the Clifton. Can you cover this? Can you cover my Limeade? (laughs) Mr. Clinton has it. Can you ride me back to my hovel?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't have a license for my Segway. I like that we're just ragging on him. I love Ray Bradbury. (laughs) Anyways, he continued to work through the years and became a well-loved literary character, giving more than his fair share of speech to schools and libraries, promoting literacy and showing up to book festivals and being, from all appearances, incredibly kind and appreciative to his friends. I I
0: will give him that. He seems like a really nice guy and he he cared about people. Yeah. He and did he, a lot for the city. He did, yeah. I'll loved give to, him that. I'll give him that. I'll, of give, all his I'll give one of the most famous writers of all time that. that. He also never lost his
1: footing. Like He loved talking about, like, I did this at the library. I did this because yeah. I read about it. Yeah, like, he was
0: crazy about the library. Yeah. yeah. He
1: yeah. would win awards all through his life. You know, he had many TV and movie adaptations of his work. Even, like, recently they redid, like, Fahrenheit 451. He was, like, involved. Yeah, I think he was involved with Michael that. Michael B. Jordan and Michael yeah. B. Shannon. Marguerite, his wife, died in 2003, and Ray Bradbury himself died in 2012 at the age of 91. Three years later, his house—he wrote many classics in One Zero Two Six Five Cheviot Drive in Cheviot Hills—was demolished by a dickhead named Tom Maine, who was confused and disappointed by the public's negative reaction. He said, "Maybe I'm naive, but it's just really been a—it's just really been a bummer." He Maybe tried to I'm make
0: it but it's too late.
1: He tried to make it up.
0: We're about to be in- infected yet again. Hi. Don't encourage that. <laughs> Greg, you're putting children at risk. More so than usual.
1: Tom Main, the guy who destroyed the house, he tried to make it up to the fans by having a company turn fragments of the wood of Bradbury's house into 450 sets of wooden bookends. Sold for $88.50. But the money went to the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies at
0: India University. Why $88.50? Oh, is that the address? No, that no, wasn't no, no, it? No, no, no. I don't know why that
1: much. But then of the money they collected from selling these bookends made of Ray Bradbury's old house, the center that they were donating to only got a portion of it. <laughs> But Bradbury's legacy isn't about a house. The city dedicated the cross streets of Fifth and Flower to him, declaring it Ray Bradbury Square because it was close to Clifton's and the Central Library, two places incredibly important to Bradbury. Is Bradbury's legacy bigger than a cross street? Yeah. In 1971, one of the Apollo astronaut teams landed on the moon. They named a crater after one of his novels. They called it Dandelion Crater. Is Bradbury's legacy <laughs> they deeper than a... the worst one.
0: What? They picked the worst one. They picked a different one. Um, <laughs> well, is his well, name Bur- Burroughs bigger- got one on Mars. That's fine. Is
1: le- his legacy deeper than a crater? it depends on the creator (laughs) ray bradbury was a sci-fi futurist who didn't like computers or the internet who didn't fly in a plane until late in his life but the most important thing about bradbury to me was his enthusiasm his never-ending hustle his vision but he was a champion of the imagination his crusade was to get everyone to use their imagination and their creativity and make something he wrote a great american novel on a library coin operated (laughs) typewriter and you could do that too not you (laughs) All you need is imagination and a bunch of dimes. He's a guy who has his footprint on this city. He's a guy with city folk tales. When I was growing up and I wanted to be a writer since the second grade, Miss Prince Metal's class, it was pushed on me that Ray Bradbury, <laughs> famous sci-fi writer, always went to the library. He always read. He always wrote. He did it, and you can do it too. That's Ray Bradbury's legacy. And he was a son of the city, albeit a, an adopted son. Ken Starr says it best in Golden Dreams, California, in the Age of Abundance, 1950, 1963. In short, like Los Angeles itself, eclectic and unintimidated, and an entertainer whom highbrow critics took seriously, a self-educated urban planner respected by professionals and a jack of all riding trades, Bradbury was, in short, a Latter-day Jack London for Los Angeles and doing all this without the benefit of a driver's license. That's Ray Bradbury's story. Uh, Yeah, but...
0: (laughs) Yeah, but dandelion wine. I rest my case, dandelion wine.
1: I'm taking my friggin' shoes off.
0: No, that's a symptom.
1: (laughs) That's too cold. It's far too cold for
0: that. He's not my favorite, but I do respect him, and I am also told I should respect him more. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'd like to say something before you start on this one mm-hmm.
1: that i feel like with this episode i picked both of yours <laughs> you did it, but no, no 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 you didn't pick raymond chandler you tossed it up in the air yeah, and, and you... i said first i wanted you to tarzana i want to do burrow story because it has to do with the valley and i know you would eat <laughs> it up with this one you you asked me if i wanted to do
0: it and i said no i want you to do it
1: i like hearing stories from you because they're always better
0: well here's the oh that's good to hear <laughs> let's uh isolate that that's the new intro let's get it was a cold rainy day the kind of day that made you use a simile perhaps (laughs) even a reference to a blonde woman
1: It's good that is as undelivered as a pizza from a dead guy see
0: you're just (laughs) as good as raymond chandler now it's time to talk about the writer who's synonymous with the city i live in the city of angels raymond thornton chandler (laughs) was born july 23rd 1888 in the city we all know and love Chicago, Illinois. <laughs> they, they all, They're all, I think they might have all been from Chicago. Not Brackett, but the other ones were for sure Illinois. Yeah, were. Yeah. His mom, Florence, was a former Quaker from Ireland, and his dad, some people called him, maurice was also a former Quaker from Pennsylvania, who is now a railway engineer by day and an alcoholic by night, and some, <laughs> sometimes by day. Two jobs? Wow, was he Edgar Rice Burroughs? <laughs> the Chandler name being an old French word for candlemaker. I didn't know that. Chan- like chandelier. Oh duh. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean candlemaker. That, that doesn't have to do with anything. But why didn't I yeah. put that together? So he didn't spend much time in Chicago. His only memory of Chicago, I saw a cop shoot a little white dog to death. (laughs)
1: Yep, Raymond Chandler.
0: Ray Bradbury took that experience and turned it cute. (laughs) The family then moved to Plattsmouth, Nebraska to be with his mom's sister until Raymond was seven when all around the same time he got scarlet fever and his dad abandoned the family making his mom what they call a drink widow. Wow. So his dad's gone, he's at death's door now. So not knowing what to do, Raymond and his mom moved to Ireland that year in 1895 to be with her family and then in 1896 to London to be with her mom and sister. For education, Raymond was sent at age 12 to the Dulwich College, where it became clear that Little Ray had a knack for two subjects. Math, which he won several awards for, and classic literature, which I don't think he ever won an <laughs> award for. He became well-versed in ancient literature. Like, this was a... He was literate. He yeah. knew books. He... he are you going to get into the Knights of Templar? No, what was he? Also no, crazy? No, he, like, loved it. And, okay. like, we'll get into okay. Marlowe later. Well, he was reading the works of the Greek poets in Greek. Oh my God, really? Yeah, but there were two things he took away from uh, from Dolwich that would define him later in life. The first was that one of his exercises was that he would take, he'd take Latin texts. He could read Latin also. He'd translate them into English and then retranslate them into Latin with their new English filter on it. What is he, like a demon summerer? He also did it backwards. <laughs> he so, a little bunch of candles. He's a candle maker. So what that did was it taught him how to take a story and then boil it down to its bare bones and then retell the story with oh, his wow. interpretation. So the second thing he took away was the name of one of the houses at the college was Marlowe House. Wow. Okay. So these two things apparently stuck with him. But as talented as he was at math and literature, he decided to pursue international law instead and spent his teenage years studying in Paris and Munich until 1907 when he came back to London to take the break British civil service exam, which is a test that lasts for six days, competing against... <laughs> what, are you getting hazed by your fraternity? Pretty much. You're competing against like a thousand other British boys for six days. He ended up finishing first in classics on the test and third overall, which landed him a clerkship with the British Admiralty, which I'm sure is something that makes sense to somebody. What it also landed him was a life that he didn't like. He, <laughs> he quit his clerkship shortly after getting it and turned towards something he'd always expressed interest in right So he became a freelance journalist for the London Daily Express, but he quickly realized reporting wasn't what he was meant for? No. He knew deep down what he was meant to write was sappy, limp poetry. So, like gothic prose, right? Bad poems. Bad, not good poetry. The first one he got published was called "The Unknown Love," which could have been one of his books. That was 1908, and all he got 27 poems published in the Westminster Gazette and Bristol's Western Gazette. He also did a few essays, a short story called "The Roseleaf Romance." Nobody liked any of this, and he couldn't make a living, so he gave up writing as well. And then, since he was on a roll, he gave up Europe altogether, and he. He decided to come back to the United States. He left his mom in England, so, he, you know, I'll send back, I'll get money, I'll send back for you, I'll come. This was 1912. On the boat back to America, he met a couple named Caroline and Warren Lloyd, who lived in Los Angeles. And they were a very charismatic and intellectual couple, which Raymond was drawn to, and by the time they docked, they had extended an invitation to have him come stay in the wonderful city of Los Angeles with them. Swingers. Well. Well, you well. caught me again. I'm uh, well, making this <laughs> all up. But I was just trying, trying to see swing. if you like the idea of that. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) so after a brief and failed attempt at making a living in St. Louis um, he don't worry there's just a couple omens flying above Ducks with red eyes. (laughs) After St. Louis, he said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to Los Angeles. This house the three of them lived in, he lived with them, was at 713 South Bonnie Bray, right by MacArthur Park. Really? Raymond got along well with the Lloyds, and he was having a pretty good time. A thing that he and Warren used to do was they would go to one of the theaters. What are you looking at behind me? A beagle. Go ahead. This is why we need a secluded area (laughs) to keep your focus. You you can only stare at ghosts. Yeah, you can only look at the stains on the wall behind me (laughs) where we normally record. So they would go to a theater on Broadway downtown, and they'd sit on opposite at ends of the theater and they'd go see a sad movie and when a really serious scene came on the screen, one of them would start laughing and then on the other end of the theater, the other one would start laughing and they try to see how many people they could get in the theater <laughs> to start laughing also. And they usually got most people laughing wow. with them, which is weird, a yeah. weird social a little weird, yeah. yeah. So the Lloyds also exposed him to their highbrow group of intellectual friends who would regularly gather at the house for parties. And they'd, do, like, they'd party, they'd have seances, things like that. They called themselves the optimists. This is where Raymond met a woman named Pearl Eugenia Hurlbert, which is almost the same last name as Edgar Wright. Burroughs wife, a name that's so beautiful, Raymond knew he just had to have her. (laughs) The only roadblocks were that sissy as she went by was 18 years older than him and also married. So they they struck up a non-romantic romance. But meanwhile, Raymond needed a job. He worked a lot of odd jobs around town. He was picking apricots. He was stringing tennis rackets. He had a brief stint yet again with the Los Angeles Daily Express. He only works for Daily Expresses, (laughs) But he was fired after six weeks due to sucking at writing. But he he found steady work as an accountant for the Los angeles creamery which was pretty much an ice cream company and the only idea funnier than being an accountant for an ice cream company (laughs) is when that accountant is raymond chandler (laughs) it was a dark and spicy chocolate (laughs) never said anything like that in any of his books that's what snoopy writes when he writes (laughs) so the creamery's offices were downtown on south olive and he eventually had enough money to send for his mom to join him and the two moved into a house in bunker hill oh well his life seemed to be settling into a middle of the road kind of routine just a boy his ice cream accounting books uh I'd fudge the numbers etc etc hitting on a married woman uh, yeah That's, basically trying to marry mommy issues while <laughs> also living with his mommy they'd go picnicking in the valley they just you know they were just going around the city then world war the first one came along the mustard gas one he made the pretty inappropriate decision to move his mom in with sissy yeah. the older woman he was having an emotional affair with and her husband also all lived together now while he went to war they lived at 127 south vendome near the original tommy's oh wow okay and being the good American that he was, he joined the Canadian Army. Was <laughs> the uh, Chinese one full? They were They, they had a strict no Y policy. <laughs> They made that clear after Burroughs tried. (laughs) Some think his eagerness to join was because he was torn up about sissy and didn't want to break up her marriage, even though he loved her. I think he just wanted all of his mommy issues under one roof. So (laughs) during the war, he served in the Canadian Expeditionary Force, the Royal Flying Corps and the Gordon Highlanders, which if there's one thing I understand less than British government titles, it's military titles from (laughs) any country. So this made no sense to me these (laughs) years. For Raymond, do you know about his World War One career?
1: Well, not really. I know he came back and he was a little bit messed up.
0: Uh, for Raymond, unlike everyone else in World War One, war was hell. <laughs> in France, he was in charge of leading an entire troop of men into direct German artillery fire. And during this battle, every single person in his troop died except for Raymond Chandler. Oh, my God. God. Yeah, I think he got like a concussion and everybody else was dead. So for good reason, he never wrote about or spoke of the war afterwards, except to say this. Once you've had to lead a platoon into direct machine gun fire, nothing is ever the same again. <sighs> so that was World War One. To make things worse, during the war, he got the Spanish flu. Not once, but twice. Two times? <laughs> and he managed to survive both times. You should have stayed home, buddy. Six feet? Ma- six feet. Six, six feet. Under. I'm trying to think of like a Raymond Chandler. Six feet. To the coffee shop. (laughs) 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 No. No, that's not it either. No. I'll, I'll come up with It'll it. It'll hit you. Yeah. Understandably, Raymond came back to the country a changed man. Tried his luck in Seattle doing I don't know what before he tr- then tried San Moping. Francisco. And then he went to San Francisco and It's like, no, no, no. Kind of. He, he wrote for Blocked the San husband. Francisco Daily oh. Express. He was oh. still doing newspaper stuff but always Daily Express which didn't work out. And then a bank he worked at, which also didn't work out before finally coming back to Los Angeles in 1919 to try his hand yet again at poetry which yet again didn't work out. <laughs> Another failed writer of mine. So he turned back Back to what he was apparently born to do: accounting. In 1922, he landed an accounting job at the Dabney Oil Syndicate and counted his beans in their offices in the Bank of Italy building near Pershing Square, which is now the Nomad Hotel. That's where he was uh, sitting behind a desk. He also made frequent trips down to Signal Hill, but this job put him on a solid ground for once, which allowed his mind to focus once more on his love for Sissy. Sissy seemed to be willing to leave her husband for Raymond, but the other old lady in his life, his mom, disapproved, and Raymond couldn't bring himself to go against the wish. Of his mother. Oh, my
1: God. Norman Bates over here.
0: Lucky for him, she died in January 1924, and the two and were married teller. The two were married two weeks later. You're kidding. On February 6th. Yeah. Now the old bag is dead. I can have you, old bag. <laughs> Are you can uh, be my new mommy. Life was pretty good for a little bit. He managed to work his way up from accountant to vice president of the oil company okay. and was taking in a lot of money, but something inside of him was rotten. He must have seen a lot of greed in the job based on greedy oil men that keep coming up in his books. Yeah. And he wasn't that kind of guy. He can't have been happy with that line of work. And his memories and desires must have just started catching up to him. Because as the year went on, he started drinking a lot, caring less and less about his work. He started having affairs with his secretaries, and eventually in 1932 the company just didn't want to tolerate it anymore, so they fired him. So now it's the height of the Great Depression, and we've got a depressed man with no job at all. (laughs) And he's a drunk. Yeah, He was living at 1639 Reedsdale in Silver Lake around this time, but his money troubles started chasing him out of places. So in all, he lived in 24 places across Los Angeles from Silver Lake all the way to Santa Monica and everywhere in between. He pretty much was moving every single year. Like a couch sir no he owned oh, he like, or rented all oh, these houses but he just was like uh, uh i don't know they how. kicked us out i don't know where the last four months of yeah. rent went so not knowing how to make money and nowhere to turn he decided to give writing another shot again apparently writing is just so lucrative and easy for people to do and that it's also like you only come across it when you're at the bottom yeah so he hadn't completely abandoned writing by this point he seems to have dabbled here and there casually on august 29th 1917 he had even registered a comic opera he wrote called the princess and the peddler but keep in mind he's 44 years old <laughs> when he's turning to tr- really get serious about writing he's 44 years old he wasn't a hot young gun anymore writing bad poems for newspapers he was an older guy but he knew he needed to make this work so yeah. it, but instead of journalism and bad poetry this time he fixed his sights on a different type of writing he was a fan of mystery and detective stories in particular dashel hammett who was the king at the time of detective stories the two ended up meeting once in their lifetimes but raymond they, they liked each other apparently yeah but, but then no they he didn't become friends or anything no raymond respected hammett's ability to deliver solid detective stories he thought maybe i could do that sort of thing he didn't like contrived murder stories designed around random plot twists he liked stories about people murdering people for good reasons yeah so like what hammett did raymond wanted to elevate the pulp crime stories and take them to a higher level and sneak in high quality literary writing while yeah. he was at it which he was capable mm-hmm. like he knew literature. he knew literature yeah he sat down at a typewriter and five months later he had an word story called called Blackmailers Don't Shoot. He managed to sell it to Black Mask Magazine, mm-hmm. and Raymond Chandler's first detective story was published December 1933, and he made a whopping $180 for five months of work. <laughs> <laughs> but for once in his life, a small paycheck didn't make him quit immediately. Writing fast was never his specialty, so yeah. he kept slowly churning out more short detective stories every few months. Short stories that took him months to write. yeah, And was selling them to Black Mask and other pulp magazines like Dime Detective, Detective. To Fiction Weekly for barely any money at all. Yeah. On average, he was only making about fifteen hundred dollars a year at this time of his life. But with his fourth short story, "Killer in the Rain," he hit on something. His <laughs> his one of his many uh, <laughs> yeah, his businesses. old wife's mom. <laughs> this was when he introduced his new hero. It was a weary detective who was smart, cool, and flawed, but also uncorruptible and a modern day for the thirties righteous knight. Fighting for the forces of good that's in a world always, full of evil. That's what he
1: said. Is that Philip Marlowe was a Knights Templar?
0: Philip Marlowe is. Uh, he's not exactly someone you want to be around, but he always does the right thing, yeah. which is uh, what's it, so much fun to read.
1: It is, yeah, and he's incredibly funny, but he's also like compelled to figure out what happened. Like it's yeah. not even for about the good of the victim, yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: this is Philip Marlowe. Enter yeah. Philip Marlowe. Raymond went on to make Philip Marlowe the main character of all the rest of his stories. It wasn't until 1939, at the age of 50 that he decided to try his hand at long stories and after three months, which is pretty quick for him, he wrote his first book, The Big Sleep, centered around Philip Marlowe. This is when his money troubles started going away because paperback books were just starting to go through a huge phase of popularity. Uh So his writing was finally starting to pay off big time. And rightfully so because he had done exactly what he had set out to do years earlier and elevated the detective genre. His murders weren't frilly, whimsical Agatha Christie or like the case of the cat who licked the boysenberry pie or that sort of thing. There was no sentimentality Speaking of Raymond Chandler. Speaking I mean, Raymond Bradbury. Bradbury yeah. Whatever. His crimes were harsh and they were real and they were yeah. they were scary. There was violence. There was rape as children just walked by. Yeah. The world was dirty and rough and hard. In other words, hard-boiled. He was yeah. doing hard-boiled crime fiction. And his writing style was unique and revolutionary. He wasn't particularly great at plot like we, we talked, about, really talked about. Nor that. did he care to be. He hated neat endings. He said the ideal mystery was the one you would read if the ending was missing. It doesn't matter a damn what a novel is about. The only writers left who have anything to say are those who write about practically nothing and monkey around with odd ways of doing it. Like we were talking about, there's the whole thing with the big sleep. Everyone's begging him, like, who killed the chauffeur? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. care. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Leave me alone. So he didn't have plot, but what he had was style because he had such a strong literary background. Raymond was fond of simile and mm-hmm. had a knack for evoking images. A really good one too. Like I've got a list coming oh, up. Hit, hit me with it. This talent was heightened down even further by the word restrictions in the pulp magazine. So he, he had been working. Oh, he, he had to be tight. He had to keep things so tight and concise and get his point across and phrase it perfectly. Yeah. All right, here, here's a long list. Some of the oh, best boy. lines of his. From 30 feet away, she looked like a lot of class. From 10 feet <laughs> away she looked like something made up to be seen from 30 feet away (laughs) i'm an occasional drinker the kind of guy who goes out for a beer and wakes up in singapore with a full beard (laughs) neither of the two people in the room paid any attention to the way i came in although only one of them was dead she smelled the way the taj mahal looks by moonlight that's pretty good beautiful yeah (laughs) i needed a drink i needed a lot of life insurance i needed a vacation i needed a home in the country what i had was a coat a hat and a gun it was a blonde This one's
1: oh, I, I love this one. It was
0: a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. <laughs> <laughs> if I had a razor, I'd cut your throat just to see what ran out of it. <laughs> the English may not always be the best writers in the world, but they are incomparably the best dull writers. <laughs> Those are all of his good lines. Those are the only good lines. Yeah, his writing was initially ignored by critics because of the genre he was working in. But by the mid '40s, they had picked up on what he was doing and started He started getting some respect for it. The New Yorker said that he wrote as if pain hurt and life mattered. Oh, that's good. Yeah, his second book came it was 1940s farewell my lovely which Uh came out at just the time when hollywood started getting interested in detective stuff so this was his first work that was eventually turned into an rko movie in 1942 called the falcon takes over they renamed it which i thought was a sequel to the maltese falcon (laughs) i would have loved that but no um i'm sure they want they thought we could trick people and make an extra 500 bucks but people were stupid (laughs) it's the marketing that dreams are made of (laughs) he made two thousand dollars for this for selling a movie but even more important he was now in with Hollywood yeah that same year Fox paid him $3,500 for the rights to his book The High Window which they turned into the movie that I could have sworn was a James Bond movie Time to Kill then in 1943 he got hired by Paramount to write scripts for them his first job was working with Billy Wilder writing the script for Double Indemnity mm-hmm. and he got paid $10,500 which was like 10 years worth of work for him before. yeah,
1: yeah think of a cameo in that movie too
0: he does he's sitting in a chair outside of an office yeah Raymond and Wilder did not get along <laughs> at all and the first draft by Raymond Raymond had a great mood, but it made no sense. So Wilder completely retooled it and made it work as a movie for which they were both nominated for an Oscar for this. Oh, but wow. by them, Raymond had long since dropped out of the project. This brings us to the kind of man Raymond Chandler was. He was shy. He was a shy guy, but he was also often incredibly cruel and rude to people. He hated most people and didn't have many friends. I feel like I'm both him and ray bradbury (laughs) a good healthy mix of the two (laughs) he didn't have many friends he seemed fine with that also one time an old man came up to him and told him he was a big fan of his and wanted to shake his hand but raymond said he didn't shake people's hand which hey ahead of his time <laughs> and as the old man was walking away he yelled who's that old bastard imagine coming around here and making a nuisance of himself oh my a guy who just wanted to tell him i like you <laughs> so mean the reason he may have refused to shake hands though might have been that he because he had really bad eczema oh, on his wow. hands it was so bad that sometimes he had to wear gloves to type on the typewriter wow. he also constantly had bronchitis rashes on his chest and neck that were sometimes so painful he had to take morphine for it
1: oh my god he that wasn't shingles it
0: could have been yeah uh, it he, he had so i'm sure he also has shingles and still remnants of the spanish flu yeah. he had sinus problems a skin allergy that made his fingers split open he also had shingles oh my god <laughs>
1: what a mess of a human
0: despite all that he also cheated on sissy constantly and he saw himself as like a playboy and i imagine he was wrapped up like the invisible man <laughs> like women love me just don't press on me too hard there were also rumors he was secretly gay which is interesting. The New York Times referred to his life as a nauseating gothic extravaganza. Wow. (laughs) People are zinging each other left (laughs) and right here. And he hated Hollywood so much. He didn't feel like he fit in. I wonder why. And he also (laughs) resented it for making him question his abilities as a writer. He said, if my books had been any worse, I should not have been invited to Hollywood. And if they had been any better, I should not have come. (laughs) In Hollywood, they stick a knife in your back and then have you arrested for carrying a concealed weapon. (laughs) (laughs) He said the Oscars He said the Oscars were Hollywood exquisite attempt to kiss itself in the back of the neck. (laughs) And this attitude stretched to his feelings towards Los Angeles as a whole. He described it in ways that hadn't been done before in his books. This wasn't the beautiful, sunny orange groves the boosters were selling. To him, Los Angeles was a dark, corrupt, and dirty city his books had lines like i smelled los angeles before i got to it in one Marlowe lamented i used to like this town a long time ago there were trees along wilshire boulevard beverly hills was a country town westwood was bare hills and lots offering at 1100 dollars and no takers hollywood was a bunch of frame houses on the interurban line los angeles was just a big dry sunny place with ugly homes and no style but good hearted and peaceful. People used to sleep out on their porches. Little groups who thought they were intellectuals used to call it the Athens of America. It wasn't that, but it wasn't a neon lighted slum either. <laughs> very torn about the city. Raymond himself said LA was a city with all the personality of a paper cup. But that disdain and his power with words created that iconic noir image of LA in the 30s and 40s that still holds today. And his stories went to a lot of trouble to include real places around the city. He mentions the 2nd Street Tunnel, the Hollywood Uh and Central Library, Franklin Avenue. All dramatic. Maybe not Franklin Avenue, but all dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing's more dramatic than Franklin. (laughs) Six feet from Franklin Avenue. (laughs) Angel's Flight, Laurel Canyon, even the places he made up were based on real places in the City. Grey Lake was the Silver Lake Reservoir. Here we go. Bay City. A constant reference point for you. Yeah. yeah. Santa Monica was yeah. Bay City. Marlowe's office was in the Coanga building which was actually the security trust and savings building at Hollywood and Coanga, which is still there today. Oh wow. And that's why that intersection is the Raymond Chandler Square. He had a complicated relationship with the city but it made him what he was. Yeah. He ended up working on the scripts for And Now Tomorrow The Unseen and Strangers on a Train with yeah. Alfred Hitchcock who he also hated <laughs> and called a fat bastard for which Alfred Hitchcock never forgave him (laughs) even though he based the movie Psycho on him Uh, Hitchcock eventually threw out everything Raymond had done and started fresh with a new writer the reason there was so much tension between him and directors was that he wanted complete control over his scripts which he finally got when he was hired to write The Blue Dahlia Mm -hmm. his demands before he got hired he had to have six secretaries oh god two Cadillac limos ready for him to use day or night and he had to be able to work from home and be drunk while he did it and for some reason the studio agreed he was also nominated for an Oscar for this. He was nominated for two Oscars, Raymond Chandler. Okay. This didn't win. Not that great. Uh, I can't imagine. This work made him very rich as did his Philip Marlowe radio shows, several TV episodes. He wrote for the Schlitz Playhouse type of shows. He also had a Philip Marlowe TV show that ran from 1959 to 1960. Meanwhile, by 1949 he had sold over 3 million copies of his books. He was also growing as a writer. By the time The Long Goodbye came out in 1953, he was so sick of the Marlowe character, so he made him a more well Rounded and vulnerable person in this book just to try something different. In all, he only wrote seven books and 25 short stories. He also wrote a paragraph long parody of science fiction stories (laughs) where he referred to a character who knew a lot of things, and the character's name was Google. That's funny. Yeah. In 1946, (laughs) he left LA and moved to La Jolla, La Jolla, where he lived with Sissy until 1954 when she died, and that sent Raymond's life once again into a downward spiral. (laughs) Who am I going to cheat on now? Where do I get the thrill of adultery? As not great as their relationship was, she was all he had, and now he had nobody. Right. Except La Jolla. <laughs> he started splitting his time between Southern California and England, where he would host a lot of parties in hopes of meeting girls. <laughs> he said in the Artistic Society of London, about one man in three is homosexual, which is very hard on the ladies, but not at all hard on me. There you go. Yeah. As his nose fell off. But usually his personality would get the better of him at these parties. He'd just go into another room away from the party after a while and just yeah. let people do their thing in his house. A very funny philip Marlowe thing to do yeah his drinking got worse and worse in 1955 he attempted suicide i read two different stories about what happened either he tried shooting himself twice but missed and was about to try a third time when the cops came in or he was in his office and his secretary heard a gunshot and when the cops came in they found him standing in the bathtub with the curtains drawn and his head hanging down with the gun in his hand and a hole in the ceiling just defeated either way he went to a sanitarium after that. That's another job he's not good at. Well, fortunately. Fortunately. The best job he failed. <laughs> he was so depressed towards the end of his life that he couldn't even look at the Pacific Ocean because it made him think about how many people had drowned in it. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is depression. Yeah. At the very end, he was elected president of the Mystery Writers of America, and he released his final book in 1958, Playback, which nobody likes. <laughs> he had a lot of help in these later years from his agent, Helga Green, who got they they got engaged a few months before Raymond Chandler died on March 26, 1959 of pneumonia in La Jolla, which is a title he would have hated, but a plot he would have loved. (laughs) There were 17 people at his funeral. 17 people for After, raymond chandler yeah and helga green then sued to get his fortune which was sixty thousand dollars. he left behind an unfinished book called poodle springs that was finished years later by robert parker oh wow okay so raymond chandler left behind oh. a legacy you cannot deny in his writing which it should be mentioned was occasionally racist and usually sexist yeah but the man himself didn't always see it that way he ended up being respected by a lot of literary people in his lifetime like t.s Eliot and evelyn waugh who was actually pen pals with him oh really but part of him hated his own books and resented his own supposed goal of elevating the genre and intellectualism in general. He was once asked if he wanted to win a Nobel Prize for his writing. He said not if it takes too much hard work. (laughs) But at the same time he ferociously defended his work to anyone who said even something slightly mean about it. Like he would jump down their throat. (laughs) He said being referred to as a crime writer was slightly below assault. But when asked why he doesn't write quote unquote serious novels he said you cannot have art without a public taste and you cannot have a public taste without a sense of style and quality through the social structure. It can exist in a savage and dirty age, but it cannot exist in the age of Milton Burrell, <laughs> Mary Margaret McBride, the Book of the Month Club, the Hearst Press, and the Coca-Cola machine, which I take to mean that he felt that even back then, who's to say what art is yeah. when what's popular would be considered trash to the art of an earlier time? So who's to say? Yeah. Like what? Well, who are you to judge me? So along that line of thinking, he made literary pop into art like what Andy Warhol was doing. Exactly, yeah. Except not colorful, dark, (laughs) very dark. He took the mystery and detective novel to a higher level. Some say higher than Hammett ever did. That's why he was the first genre writer and the first writer from LA to be collected in the Library of America. And that's why he's considered to be, by many, to be the author of Los Angeles. Take that, everyone else we've talked about already.
1: (laughs) Not Ray Bradbury. (laughs) Except for... He used a typewriter. 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 He
0: wrote on a typewriter. Reading about Raymond Chandler wanted to make me read more because that's another author whose books are short enough and yeah. so interesting that like you could just tear through and he only wrote seven of them yeah
1: and when i first started reading it's him, like half of moby dick <laughs> it's like one sixteenth of moby dick when i started reading them I, I felt like i found what i had always been looking for because i like yeah was reading literature at college and they would weigh you down with such like big books yeah that you're reading just like the description of clouds and what they meant to margaret that day of her sister's wedding and then you go to the him i like boom i'm tired i don't want to go to bed the phone rings and i gotta get up yeah
0: yeah, that's, the thing. that's another thing. It's constant yeah. motion in yeah. a Raymond Chandler book. So he'll be like, exactly that. He's a whole day of doing this stuff. He goes home. There's someone waiting behind exactly, the door. And yeah. it starts all over again. And then like
1: you're <laughs> nine chapters in and you're like, he hasn't slept.
0: No <laughs> He hasn't slept at all And he's only had whiskey Yeah he's and only
1: had whiskey And like water
0: by accident Yeah and an old ham. He smelled an old hamburger that's <laughs> All it. way over the, All of these It made me want Even I want to reread uh, Fahrenheit 451 But yeah. I want to read more Tarzan I mm-hmm. want to try the John Carter stuff Yeah And I want to t- Find a Lee Brackett book I'll, I'll let you big jump But I want yeah. to
1: read her She did a couple noir ones And I'm really Like the Long Tomorrow Is an atomic destruction book No Good for a Corpse Is a noir book I really want to jump into them Yeah it got me going
0: good you know and what, now we have the time to read them <laughs> Now we we have time now <laughs> you know what you have time to do now leave us a review on iTunes. You can leave us a couple because you have so much time. Yeah, and I'm sure you're just buying phones left and right. (laughs) If you have an iPhone and you use iTunes, well, if you have an iPhone, you do, you have to. (laughs) Yeah, they demand that you do. So, uh, leave us a review, five stars, some words if you want. It's nice. Follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly, Instagram LA underscore Meekly. YouTube, you can listen to all this if that's how you prefer. Or Spotify, if that's easier for you. Spotify. You can also, if you want to support us financially on Patreon, we will send you coronavirus free, hopefully, hopefully uh let them sit in your mailbox a little bit a postcard for five dollars a month a postcard each month handwritten by us or for less you're just supporting us to keep this going because we make no, no money. No, no money from this.
1: We we make so little money that we're in between two football games right now.
0: <laughs> we're begging the government for a bailout. Yeah. And they won't give it. We'll also say your name at the top of an episode. So, how do you feel about uh, recording outside in this horrible time? In it was lives? hard to read
1: my paper because it was flying all over the place. It's cold. <laughs> I want to go home so bad. Me
0: too. I'm getting hungry. And it's scary because you can't really go anywhere. To, I mean, you can, but yeah. I'd
1: rather not. I go eat my stupid you, food that I have to make myself.
0: That's another thing. Everyone be safe please be safe and and take this seriously also like by the time this comes out i'm sure there will be stricter things but like i've been thinking about like you know we're trying to think of other outbreaks in los angeles history and we're living in it right now like this is the history that yours and my incestuous great grandkids will be talking about in 100 years so be on the right side of history here and don't get you know we're being as far apart as we can Mm -hmm. don't get close to people don't go out don't be stupid yeah don't be that be responsible because like you might not exactly i don't care like if you're like if you're one of these people who makes me so angry who are like i'm young old people can die like first of all who are you yeah and you could die but also if you don't care what if you give it to someone who gives it to someone who gives it to someone who gives it to my parents exactly i'll never forgive you and i'll know
1: (laughs) yeah you could be hurting someone down the line that you don't even you're not even aware of and how do you not care about that and you this isn't something you can just walk off like
0: we're seeing so many sides of people right now and it's it's shocking but also uh, there's a lot of good people do yeah, I'm hoping
1: things. that the enthusiasm that the people because, you know, staying at home right now, there's like a camaraderie there. And I hope it doesn't yeah. turn nasty In by the time this episode comes out.
0: Give it a few weeks. People are going to get there's going to be someone running down the street naked two weeks in three weeks in, there's going to be a murder. I yeah, know. It. Sure. I know it. We're getting there, but we'll get there when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, yeah, stay safe, everybody. We'll see you in uh, May.
1: A lot of these books are available online through the library, so you can go ahead and read them digitally, or you can go on Audible, which I think is might be free right now. YouTube has like I think the Little Sister Lady by the Lake, like animated. Uh, this guy did it on YouTube. It's really good. All this stuff. Go ahead, dig in.
0: No free plugs. Uh, <laughs> so that's been yet another episode of La Meekly creating catchphrases since twenty thirteen. What? Huh? Have you been talking to me this whole time? (laughs)